When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh man, my arms are so small. Yeah. Oh man, I'm so I'm not as attractive as this guy. Oh man, I'm in bad shape. What's up, everybody? <laughs> Today we're talking to a viewer and listener who is calling in to talk about Black Lives Matter and all the stuff that's happening in the world today. And that's something we want to continue doing. So as we talk today, or if you've listened to us in the past, if there's anything that you disagree with and you want to come on and have a calm, friendly discussion about it, we're happy to. We'll put a link in the description on YouTube where you can put in your contact info and just let us know what topic you want to discuss and we'll do it. Yep. Awesome. So first thing, technically we have a sponsor. We have an individual who kindly reached out on Patreon, did the full $300. Justin, going to make some extra money this month. <laughs> Sounds and, good to me. <laughs> so, but what he wanted us, I think this is pretty cool, to talk about was Unity 2020. And technically he's sponsoring the next podcast. We're going to have one this week, the next week, and the following three in a row. But I thought, let's just talk about it this Yeah, week. let's do it. He Are paid you, for it. Are you familiar with Unity 2020? Only a little bit. Okay. So Brett Weinstein or Weinstein, I don't know how to pronounce his name. For those of it's you- It's with Weinstein. Weinstein. Weinstein's been ruined. Got it. Weinstein. Brett Weinstein. Weinstein. <laughs> I never thought of that. So he is famous in, in certain circles because he was at Evergreen College. And do you remember Evergreen? Yeah, of course. Okay. So for the listeners and viewers who don't know, Evergreen, what happened there was it's a pretty uh, progressive college in the northwestern United States. They decided what, what they wanted to do, the student body, was have a day where white people were not allowed on campus. And Brett said, hey, look, it's totally cool when you have sit outs, when you say, look, we're going to exempt ourselves so that you see what it is like when we're missing this particular group of people. But to insist that someone who isn't you can't go somewhere is racism, and we don't want to do that. So I, I will not be doing this. I'm going to go to work that day. He was a professor. And they shouted him down, screamed at him. Uh, they removed the campus police. They were walking around campus with baseball bats. And he will say, he's like, they didn't know what they were going to do if they saw me. And I mean that in both a terrifying way and a like, who knows what was going to happen. Like maybe they would have beat him. Maybe they just would have yelled at him. Who knows? But he was effectively fired, chased off campus uh, after that. But grew in acclaim because he said, look, these students who are going to demand that you capitulate to what they are saying and they want to remove the police force on campus and dictate who gets to speak at what times, they're going to grow up and enter into society. Uh, and what you are seeing is that that has in fact happened where this this uh, mindset has started to permeate various organizations in our culture. And you can argue whether you like it or don't. Uh, but he was prescient in that. He said, like, mm -hmm. look, these people are going to grow up and this, this ideology isn't going away. So anyway, he has a podcast. Fantastic. Highly recommended. And what he thinks is a huge problem in America is that both political parties suck. And I have to agree in the sense that as I look back, I was going to make a presidential video and I was going to cover how the last 30, 40 years of presidents have had at least one candidate who was like, very charismatic mm -hmm. and very at the very least if you didn't like their policies you liked him liked him and i would even argue that in the first trump versus hillary 
Trump was that charisma guy. Now, you might have hated his guts, but what he did was he made people really like him. Mm -hmm. And he would take what might be a valid criticism of him and destroy it with a laugh, yes. which is something charismatic. Even if you hate him and you wish he wouldn't do it, he would take someone that would accuse him of something and just make them look foolish and make people laugh, which is an aspect of charisma. Yes. So these are two separate points. But what I would suggest is that in this coming election, we, we just have kind of two charisma losers as of late. Like yeah. Trump has, we can talk about this separately, I think given up so much of his advantage in terms of his persuasive ability in the last several months. Uh, but secondarily, what Brett would say and many people is that for decades and decades, we've had crappy candidates that essentially represent the same, in his own words, rent-seeking elite that they, you know, they don't care if it's, if it's Black Lives Matter versus police on the ground. What they care about is essentially that the hedge fund managers, corporate tax rates don't move. All of the things that affect the upper, upper echelon's mm -hmm. income. And so his proposal is called Unity 2020, and it's, it's interesting. So here's what it is. He says, we're going to draft a center-right and center-left candidate. They will then be a coin flip. So he's talking about like General McRaven on the right, Andrew Yang on the left. There will then be a coin flip to see who is president and who is vice president. Mm. They will have to govern by, uh, like they will sign a pledge to govern based on agreement in these two things, and it will essentially force compromise to the middle. If this team wins a second term, they will then switch roles mm -hmm. <laughs> and one will become president, one will become vice president. So he's essentially trying to systematize mm -hmm. what has been uh, a kind of personal charisma, in my opinion, has been a charisma-based process through the years. And he thinks that in this way, we'll get better governance because rather than being completely polarized for you know, everybody either loves or hates Obama, and then everybody loves or hates Trump. We'll have people where we go, ah, we're a little bit unhappy, but we can agree. Yeah. Can I tell you the biggest problem they're going to have? Yeah, I, I have a couple. <laughs> that took three minutes to explain. So he's faster so than me. So Obama, hope and change. Yep. Trump, make America great again. We're going to win, 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 win. Yeah. Unity 2020 needs something that's five words. I agree. That encapsulates what they're going to do. So Brett is smart. Uh, he's a pre. Well, that's my concern. Yes. Smart, yes, smart I is know. not charismatic. I know. This I is know. my exact concern. <laughs> uh, he's a smart guy. He is an effective speaker when you'll give him 15 minutes. Yeah. No one will do that. I. So, so I think it's a really interesting proposal, but he talks about how they have fail safes and he's talking to people, what if this spoils the election? Meaning third parties come in, what if they just steal votes from one of the sides? And he's got answers to all of these. Well, actually what'll happen is we seem to be drawing equally for both sides, so it won't spoil the election then, but we also have a fail safe built in such that if we can't win, we kill the campaign and we just let the two parties run. All of his answers require several words mm -hmm. <laughs> to communicate and a certain degree of intelligence to understand yes which how many people are asking about spoilers you know what i mean in in the election like that that is not the most common complaint though it is the most common rebuttal to a third party and so when i watch him speak i think it is interesting but i think it lacks a couple of things one that punchiness yeah um I really do think it lacks an ability to quickly and viscerally communicate. Secondarily, by design, the system has taken the humanity out of the candidates mm -hmm. in the sense that when you voted for Donald Trump or voted for Hillary Clinton, you were voting for that person or at least against the other person. Yeah, you're voting for Bill Clinton in 1992 because mm -hmm. of the eye contact he gave the woman in the audience yeah. when he talked specifically uh -huh. about her issue. You yes. know what I mean? You're not, you don't want to vote for an AI machine at and, the extreme. And what he's done is select people who, I, I don't know about McRaven because I've never seen him, but Andrew Yang is not charismatic. 
Andrew Yang had the same outside chance that Donald Trump had and did nothing with it. Oh, yeah. This no. isn't a comment at all on his policies. This is to say that he does not have the personal bravado to galvanize a base. I'll actually go further. I think his policies would have lent themselves well to a Trump-esque victory. Yes. Which is to say, if he had charisma, I actually think the stuff he does believe could have unseated Biden and Bernie Especially and won the Especially given what happened with the pandemic, which we didn't see coming, but he never really edged above one or two percent. And yeah. I don't, so I'm being critical of Unity 2020 right now, even though it was sponsored, but these are my honest feelings on it. I think it is an idea that if affected would be a good idea. Yeah. I think that it has some issues getting off the ground in terms of being truly baked up by an academic. And if you look at the pe people who have won, while they definitely have backroom people, if one thing, if there's one thing Donald Trump isn't, it's an academic, <laughs> you know. Um, and if you, or Obama, he's a great uh, or he's a great he's orator. A great, yeah, a great orator. He's a great speaker. He, he does not write yeah. the way that. Uh, and I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but an, an academic professor, a PhD, would write a paper. Yes. Right. Which is to say, very boringly. Sure. He gets up there and he makes people who have never voted want to vote. Yeah. So this is my thing. When I listen to it, I go, this is interesting. This is fascinating. And he has condensed his message into um, 30 second blurbs and three minute blurbs. But it's still and, and he can call it unity, but it doesn't. Donald Trump had one message, build the wall, win, win, win. I mean, I guess make America two great messages. again. Make America great. But they were all so. Just four words. Yeah. yeah. It's on they a hat. Were, they were so tightly compacted. Hope and change. It fits on a hat. Yes. And, and, and I'm not suggesting that what he's missing is a slogan. I'm suggesting. Well, he's missing the person that's going to come up with the slogan and then deliver it in a way that galvanizes an audience to a standing ovation. Well, what Donald Trump completely lacked was specificity. And where this started was specificity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Question, because I know you really don't like doing projects. Yeah. If, if Eric, I might, I might. If Eric Weinstein hit you up and Brett, said... Brett, his brother's Eric, but yeah. Oh, if Brett Weinstein hit you up and said, we want you involved in Unity 2020, would you do it? 100%. Yeah? Yeah. I don't think I could help. Is the, I, I think really? I, I think I could help. I don't think I could cross the finish line. And I hate to be a... I think that... Because you think their odds are so low. Because I know at one point you said you thought who, you could have won Hillary. Who is it? So you need an individual. I think you need to, you, you absolutely need a person. And I don't think that what you can do is we have a replaceable role where we will coin flip. Donald Trump could not have been anyone else who said build the wall. Can you imagine if him and Pence coin flipped? Yeah, Pence I mean, he, it, it couldn't have happened. Barack, who was, Biden couldn't have been Obama. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that Biden, he, the only way that Biden is in it is by barely showing up yeah, yeah. <laughs> today. And being associated with Obama. Yes, and his association with Obama and allowing Donald Trump to dig his own grave. Yeah. Uh, but... I want to talk about Biden next, but let's do Unity so, 2020. So yeah, so let's stick on Unity 2020. So my feeling is that this is would be a really cool, fascinating, I like it, I'm encouraging of it, I want it to go forward, and I think all of you guys should go check it out. Because if I'm wrong, and this does have legs, get out there and get on it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fascinating project. If anyone knows anyone involved in Unity 2020... Mm -hmm. Convince them to talk to Charlie. I don't think that I'm, I mean, I don't, I feel like I'm a, I'm a hater at this point. <laughs> I'm not a hater. I'm just a doubter at this point. And I'm a doubter because the very structure of it takes out that personal connection, which in my opinion, and, and I might make a video on this, has driven the outcome of elections since the advent of television. I agree. So I might actually, we'll see, I haven't done a video in a while, but I'm considering going back basically to JFK and looking at every single election mm -hmm. and talking about 
the moments that made or broke that election. I can only remember about Clinton-ish. I was born in 87. I remember kind of Clinton too, but I remember Bush. I remember, I remember that he managed to make John Kerry's change of opinion in the face of new data flip-flopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like he changed his mind. Well, he he flip-flopping. Right? He, he's John Kerry was a flip-flopper because he took he incorporated new data and changed yeah. his mind. And then also, didn't he make John Kerry's military service somehow a bad thing? He made the swift boat thing a bad thing, which is just he was in Vietnam, dude. He came back and then he criticized Vietnam, which is like he fought. And then came back and said there was a problem, and which Bush, is one Bush, of the most noble positions one could have had. Bush ducked Vietnam, right? He didn't fight? He went to the National Guard, which is to say, my gosh, if there was an open venue to like make this point your own, and I think Kerry totally blew it. We can look back at Gore Bush, um, and that, that one was obviously so close, so I don't mean to say that uh, charisma guarantees or is the only thing, but it certainly is a major factor mm -hmm. in, I think, a lot of these elections. And well, Donald Gore, Trump came in and showed that you can, it looked like money. If you looked for a while, it looked like money was the thing. Because if you, you can also chart um, spend on campaign and it correlates really with who wins until Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. He spent a little bit more than a third of what Hillary spent. Mm -hmm and cleaned up electorally. Now people will point back, shoot back that he didn't win the popular vote. And that's kind of like saying, uh, we're playing chess and you try to hop me in a checkers way. I'm like, you can't do that. Everyone knew the rules of the game was electoral. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He crushed her electorally. Well, separately, I'm not even sure I support the electoral college. Me neither, but, <laughs> but if you're playing chess and you're complaining that yeah, the I rules agree. aren't the same. I agree. Um, I'm just saying that might have been something that made sense in the past and we should probably get rid of. He would have, I think, campaigned very differently. Sure. If that was the case. But I in agree. any event, um, so what I think is, yeah, what I think is fundamentally missing from Unity 2020, I mean, you're taking someone who couldn't do it. Andrew Yang is a, is a top candidate, which I think he's got really interesting, great ideas. It seems like a reasonable dude, but he at the very least needs some coaching or training. Uh, and I'm not even sure if coaching or training can do it because when I look back at the absolute superstar charismatic candidates, which in my opinion over the last 30 years are Clinton, Obama, and Trump, like him or hate him. And JFK. Well, I said 30 years. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know enough about those guys. I'm just going to the people that I saw as I was growing up. Um, I don't think anyone taught them. I think that their life shaped them into these beasts <laughs> who could who could stand up there and and just had it uh so yeah maybe i'm maybe i'm the guy that has a hammer and everything looks like a nail that's how i treat charisma but that is a huge thing that i think is missing from this systemic way of approaching the yeah. election i don't think that you're a hammer because if we were talking about tech ceos i don't think you'd be saying the most charismatic tech CEO is the most likely no, person to make no, a billion dollar no. company. You'd go, no, it's whoever's going to be. Oh, by the way, if anyone, by the way, if anyone wants a billion dollar idea, come up with the next TikTok that's not Chinese malware. They're going to ban TikTok at some point in the U.S. and it's just begging for an identical app. So, uh -huh. I know so, they're working on one right now. Are they? In a, yeah, a startup by a bunch of YouTubers. Yeah, like Ryan Higa's a part of it. It's called, no kidding. I don't know if I should plug it because it's not really, but it's a, it's called Tacos. So they're coming out with it. Tacos, dude. They're gonna ban TikTok. TikTok. T -A -K -K. TikTok. They will. Yeah, yeah, TikTok is spyware for China. They're eventually gonna ban it. There's clearly a demand for it. There was Vine. Then there's TikTok. If someone wants a free billion dollars, go make the next TikTok. I have a suggestion. Be there would when you, it's banned. Would you like to? And you can say no. Would you like to on the podcast when we make predictions about the future? Set up a prediction spreadsheet. Put money and a date on things just so we can track sure. our. 
our things and, and we could do 10 bucks you know what i mean sure. like so uh let's get a date next 12 months next 12 months yep. okay no and, and i think you deserve odds now i guess i have to pay you who has to pay you because i don't want to take necessarily i'll take the other side for yeah. for for shoots and giggles i'll take the other side uh what odds do you want i think you deserve better than 50 50 or or one-to-one odds what do you justin what do you think what are the odds tiktok gets banned in the US I think it's pretty high. <laughs> oh, you think? Okay, honest. then screw it. We'll do one to one odds. Even odds? All right. Ten bucks. Ten bucks. Ten bucks. <laughs> so ten bucks next twelve months, yep. Justin. If you don't mind, sorry to add more to your job. No, set will an you, alarm. Yeah, yeah. Will you will you set up a spreadsheet and we'll track predictions? So yeah. um, July and we'll 15th, we'll do this for the election as July well. July fifteenth, twenty twenty one. We'll do this for set the election. A, set a reminder as we get closer. Um, I need to dig into this. My so let's talk charisma in this current presidential election. Sure. Can we talk about the the phantom of joe biden that's running for president it's Mm. hilarious dude it's july do you remember how much we heard about trump and how often he was on tv for i think it was 18 months so he started the previous summer so this would be like last year's summer and he started getting aggressive coverage once the primary started so we made our first video about him after several requests in like january and he was on tv every day it's all over yes. TV. It's July. Yeah. Election is a couple months away. You do not see Joe Biden on TV. You and do not hear about him. He pops up on the Breakfast Club. Yep. Says, you ain't black if you vote <laughs> for Trump. Get back. <laughs> and then disappears for a little bit. <laughs> then he comes out with what I thought was a cool plan. I, I didn't really understand it fully about making uh, clean energy infrastructure. And he comes out, he announces it, and then he's gone. It's like whack-a-mole. Yeah, like yeah. He will not stay out long enough for Trump to hit him. Yes. He just... It's fascinating. So I, I think have it's, not seen a presidential election like this. What's crazy is I think it's the right strategy, given who he is, mm-hmm. for like his handlers to keep him out of the limelight. Uh, because he, what has happened right now is that, uh, you could call it, Donald Trump is uh, dealing with a pandemic that uh, I would say most people, maybe not everybody, but, I, but is... Uh, some of the people in the middle are feeling that he's handling poorly. So mm-hmm. some of the votes that he could have gotten, I think, are, are being yeah, his lost. His base is still behind him. Yeah. He's got a mask. Masks are cool. If he doesn't, masks yeah, yeah. aren't cool. But, but but some of the people that could go either way or might show country. up. Yeah. There's the 60% of the country is not convinced he's mm-hmm. handling Corona well. And I think where he does well, if you look at him, is when he's on offense. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at 2016, what he did was just he went down the line of Republican candidates and then Hillary and picked a target and knocked him out. Mm-hmm. He's Conor McGregor. He's like, he yeah, just puts Jeb his hand... Weak, Jeb is weak. Yeah. Jeb is weak. Little Marco, little Marco, little Marco. Crooked Ted? Is that Lion what it Ted. Lion, Lion Ted, Ted, Crooked, Crooked Ted. Hillary. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Lion Ted, yeah. Lion Ted, Lion Ted. And he just picks on you one at a time. Yep. And now he's have to, he has to defend his own actions now. Yes, he's on defense one, and Joe Biden isn't coming out long enough for him to say much. So yep. Sleepy Joe isn't as interesting when Joe Biden hasn't been seen for weeks. Yeah, I told you this. Do you think that they will use the coronavirus to prevent presidential debates so that Biden doesn't have to face Trump one-on-one? I would say no. You don't think they'll be able to do it? Do you think if the Democratic Party could, they would? Yes. Okay. So we, are, so we agree debates are to Joe Biden's detriment. I think Joe Biden being seen is to Joe Biden's detriment. And I don't mean this to say that, like, when, I, when I'm commenting on this stuff, I'll let you know what I'm talking about policy. I'm talking about Joe Biden's ability to not mess up his yeah, yeah. lead right now well he also has a lifelong stutter so in addition to people think that he might have dementia or whatever mm-hmm. it is uh he just does have a stutter mm-hmm. which is going to hurt unfortunately because when you stutter it makes you look indecisive yeah i think I, like i said i think donald trump is incredible at offense i think i think if you give him a target to hit and 
he's he is at his best mm -hmm. in those situations and i'm not and, and i should say this is not to say that he's ethically at his best that he's honestly just to the best if, if he wants just to that win. he is in terms of winning the election he's at his best on offense and so i think giving him no looks at joe biden is is to the advantage of the the democrats, de the democrats but you don't election. think they'll be able to just say it's unsafe to have these people together in a room i think no there's gonna have to be one i mean one. i'm willing to bet you want to take a bet no on no no one? but you're saying you think there's 10 bucks one, one to one this november be... i think they will have three debates wow not if i'm in charge of the democratic uh, party i not. mean i mean you might that might be the machiavellian best move is to just go we can't do it like send us send us what your questions are and joe will teleprompter in yeah exactly. you know like oh uh, no yeah for sure if i'm if yeah. you're like ben your life is on the line joe biden has to win the presidency i'm like all right guys <laughs> we're not doing debates yeah so figure out some way to cancel well you know what's crazy is that not having an audience absolutely helps joe biden yes absolutely because there's, no there's, there's no laugh track there's no there's ooh, and, and they don't please be quiet no they're not going to be quiet yeah well also if you're watching and the moderator has to step in and defend yeah. the other candidate from trump right because trump says something and they go oh it's like hey stop stop yeah now that now the other side looks like they got beaten there yeah but if no one says anything then it's just trump saying something and then you at home can have whatever reaction you have yep and and that's there's a reason that laugh tracks exist despite the fact that people complain about them and it's because they make you laugh they make you laugh mm -hmm. and so when donald trump said to hillary because you'll be in jail and you heard it <gasps> like audible guffaws mm -hmm. from the audience that really drove that moment yeah for sure for him so uh yeah i would predict that they there's still YouTube, do actually a lot of famous youtubers add laugh tracks to their to their comedy youtubers bits. do yeah not going to say who, <laughs> on camera, but yeah, they add laugh tracks because, I know that. so yeah, what they do is they record their friends laughing. Oh. And so like, let's say that the three of us are, la are hanging out and I say a joke and you guys chuckle. Then what Justin would do is overlay. Just say who it is, man. Nope. Uh, Why? Because oh, I don't know for sure. Oh. If I knew for sure, I would, but I'm not going to speak oh, out of got school. It, got it, got it. These are based on rumors, dude. Rumors. But what Justin would do is overlay you guys laughing really hard on top of your chuckle, but it's still you guys laughing. It's not a random laugh track. Got it. And so when you're a vlogger and you have four friends, now it sounds like eight people laughing. Got you know it. What I'm saying. Yep. Um, so yeah. So that's that's where I. Okay. See I'll bet you there's no audience because I do think that that does help Trump. The Democrats will definitely prevent an audience. Uh, and I think the Republicans will push to have them seated far apart from one another. <laughs> you know. Well, there's. Yes. Oh, they, if you're a Democrat, you're like, yeah, please. Put, well, I put do believe in this are they? They have. So there's a number. There's always an audience, but then there's the town hall where the audience asks questions. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, but it's just fascinating. I've never seen a presidential candidate run like this. So let's talk about one of the things that's coming up. So I've been watching a lot of the Dark Horse podcast, which is Brett Weinstein's podcast. Okay. And uh, <laughs> I like how we're just mispronouncing his name. So it could it be Weinstein. So it I don't know. Sound like Harvey Weinstein. It could be Weinstein. Weinstein know. ruined a name. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot of Weinstein's. I mean, it's Adolf esque. You don't want to be a Weinstein, I don't All think. All right. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not Ben Weinstein. Sure. I mean, I guess I see what you're saying. You got Weinstein. Yeah, that wouldn't be fun. That that's that's it's just, not great. It's too easy. It's not great. Um. So, one of the things that I did, he talks about uh, his experience at Evergreen, and he talks about uh, what Jordan Peterson has been saying, which didn't really make sense the first several times I hear it, but I'm actually, I think I'm getting it. Is he's like, there's a Marxist revolution. I was like, Marxist? Like, what are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and he Brett says the same thing, which is this ideology which has invigorated um, some the black and he talks about Black Lives Matter. If you want to hear him discuss it, I think he does it very well. What he sorry, 
can we talk about yeah, there's three black lives matter yeah, yeah yeah okay so he talks about this. there's black lives matter the sentiment which is the idea that black lives matter there's black lives matter the movement which is all the people that are out there that are supporting it with signs and there's black lives matter the organization mm -hmm. which is the black lives matter website the three women that founded it. Mm -hmm. So let's just clarify what we're talking about. Yes. So I'm talking about the the three women who founded the organization. It and the way that they've structured the organization is they there's interviews and you can see they say that they are trained Marxists. Yes. Or at least two of the three are trained Marxists. So I was like, okay, I have to go look this up because this is this is a huge yeah, yeah. thing. And that's true. I looked it up. She, she says it on an interview. Yeah. Yeah. And she it, and it's not. Um, the, at the time in the interview, this isn't out of context. The interviewer is asking her, and it's interesting because he says, "What is your ideological framework?" And she says, oh, don't worry, we got one, we're trained Marxists. And it's so interesting because if you listen to other thinkers like Jordan Peterson, or they, they take ideological frameworks and go, this is the problem. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying that ideology is the problem, but it's very interesting that even from a base of like, should you be operating from a set of presuppositions uh, of, about a book that was written in the 1850s or whatever, or shouldn't you? That's not even agreed upon. Mm. And so this one group, it's like it's a necessary way of, of mobilizing oneself. So in any event, uh, I went back and read part of the Communist Manifesto, really just the first chapter and a half. I've read I'd read it previously in college, and it was so interesting my different take on it when I was eighteen or nineteen mm -hmm. versus today. And will you talk about this? Because Jordan Peterson and um, Brett, they talk about how in colleges the, there is a lot of education that pushes people towards Marxist beliefs. So I went to the Wharton yeah. Business School. So that meant nothing to me when Jordan Peterson said it. I mean, you know I mean? my undergrad was just yeah. people who were like, we're going to work our asses off and we're going to get rich. Yeah. It was the capitalist center of college age yeah. kids. So it meant, meant nothing to me. So can you, uh, I guess for anyone else who didn't go to a college like this, kind of help, what do you, what do they mean when they say universities are promoting Marxist beliefs or that so, college kids believe in yeah. Marxist values? So what I would say my experience was that I was being let in on a secret of how the world worked and everybody was wrong. So when I grew up, it was like work hard, get ahead. Mm -hmm. um, there is mobility. And I came from a middle class family mm -hmm. and that was what was understood. Yeah. If you work hard enough, you can get to the upper class from yes. the middle class. Yes. And then in college, in my classes and in the readings that we did, and Marx was in my readings and Marx angles, uh, it was that, no, here's the secret is that actually history is a history of class conflict and if you read the first just few uh paragraphs of the communist manifesto this is this is explicitly stated mm -hmm. that history is the history of class conflict and i was a philosophy major i think this is true of a lot of arts majors because their professors often believe this and it wasn't like forced that you like had to be a card-carrying communist but i then studied abroad in costa rica and the way that history is taught in costa rica is very different than the way that history is taught in america mm -hmm. and i was like oh my gosh wow this is different and that further sowed doubt appropriately into my mind about everything that i was taught in high school mm -hmm. because the the way that high school uh history is taught is very america best america centric we're number mm -hmm. one and you know that vietnam thing happened so weird right, <laughs> like, don't, don't focus so, on that so weird and i remember in high school thinking it was so like wait how do we get to vietnam wait what were we doing there and it, there was but no largely answer. we're the good guys revolutionary war we're the good guys england we're the bad good guys. uh we're fighting against the world war one yes. world war two we're the good guys everyone else that we're against so, is bad so, cold war we're the good guys russia's bad so when you're so in the u.s always number one always the good guys and there was two main threads one the u.s is actually the bad guy yep 
which I think has is worth exploring. That's as, from as, Costa Rica. That's from living in Costa Rica. A lot of Costa Rica and also philosophy major, imperialism, looking into that. But yeah, Costa Rica influenced that. And the second is that it's the U.S., when we talk about it as the bad guys, is actually the Dick, it's Dick Cheney. Just imagine Dick Cheney characterized yeah. as the... Not the people, but the guy. This isn't what you believe. The guy who, who, who the is time. relations to a contracting firm. So mm-hmm. he starts a war so that he can get profits from that and take oil and natural resources from people. So, and by the way, not because that's what anyone would do in that position, but because Dick Cheney is uniquely and specially morally bankrupt yes. in a way that surely none of us are. Yes. And so when you when I was rereading the commun or when I read the Communist Manifesto the first time, that informed my worldview. Uh, and I think it was a great balance to that America-centric first, we're the good guys, mm-hmm. you know, we, ha- we have all these resources because of our inherent virtue. It was an, it was an excellent balance and check to that. Mm-hmm. But I think at the time, what I believed was that, uh, as the Communist Manifesto says, the way that the bourgeois, which is the upper class in the terms of the Communist Manifesto, have gotten their money is by stealing from the proletariat. Mm-hmm. So the proletariat is this working class who is continually exploited by the managers and uh, well, not even the managers, the owners, essentially, mm-hmm. of the businesses. Uh, the owners contribute nothing. They are uh, they're basically just shaving off a portion and keeping the proletariat poor. Sure, capital vampires. Capital vampires is, uh, and what is necessary is an uprising of the proletariat, and then what the proletariat will do is completely antithetical to what the bourgeois would do, because whereas the bourgeois tried to get everything for themselves, the proletariat will enter into a communist utopia where they will share the means of production, mm-hmm. when the means of production are the stuff. Which we have seen when people come to power in countries that <laughs> they weren't in power. They immediately, and, <laughs> they and don't the, corrupt. And what was said about, okay, somebody would inevitably raise their hand and say, well, what about Russia? Well, that's not real communism. What about Venezuela? That's not real communism. They what about just, China? What about China? That wasn't, that's not real communism. Or actually, if you, you know, China did some good things and yes, some people died, but so that was what was said. And I'm not uh, just Spoiler alert, I think that both threads that I had learned early in my life are really missing key points, both mm-hmm. this both this America First and this communist thread. But it was very interesting to go back and read it. And what I found most struck me was the sense that uh, we would be different if we were in power. <laughs> you know, like when we take control, it's going to be different. So we yeah. got to band together and we we are not going to hoard. We're not going to be selfish. There's this idea in the Communist Manifesto, and I would love if there's a communist who is watching to come talk to me, and I'll, I'll reread the whole piece because I've only read the first chapter and a half so far, um, that, that private property only exists for the bourgeois. It does not exist for the proletariat. And I'm going, wait a second. Like, how will... like? I didn't understand this point. Like, aren't you wearing clothing that if somebody took from you, that would be theft? Yeah, yeah. You know, don't you have an abode that you go back to that if somebody walked inside, <laughs> that would be trespassing? Well, I'll do, and I'll do you one better, not to beat a dead horse. Don't you have more money than 99% of the world, yet you do not well, sorry, this is at the, this. Sorry, I'm thinking of the at the time that Marx was writing. At the time that Marx was writing, this is very different. Okay. I actually think we've made massive strides and so this is another thread that was said so why didn't this predicted revolution of the proletariat happen and what communists often say or believe is that the capitalists one invented propaganda 
So they invented mass media, consumerism to keep them dumb, pit them against each other, and also made a few concessions like the eight-hour workday and uh, no children will have to work. They made a few concessions to the proletariat. But uh, essentially, the view that the communist has is of two opposing forces which are intrinsically different. And you kind of, this is my biggest gripe. You have the bad bourgeois mm-hmm. and the good proletariat. And in the biggest breakthrough that I've had in the last five years of my life is that the line between good and evil exists in the hearts of every man, mm-hmm. which is to say me and you, if you're listening. Like you, me, exploits someone, mm-hmm. takes advantage of someone to your own benefit. If you want to solve the exploitation in the world, which does occur from some rent seekers to some proletariat, you have to first figure out how to stop yourself from exploiting someone else. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't figure out how to stop yourself, you're in no position to help anyone else Mm -hmm. make those sacrifices. And if you got power, you would do exactly what the people in power do. Yes, yes, you can only exploit on this tiny little level, but if you had power and you had this your your own uh, mentality magnified, you would not be the benevolent god that you imagine yourself to be. You would be yeah. The probably, amount that you exploit would just scale with your power. Yes. Um. So anyway, it was just interesting to read. I don't. You, you read it. I've talked a lot. What did you? You you read a piece of it at least. Well, my, I mean, so my general sense with this stuff is it, it is it's fascinating to me how someone will leave a guillotine outside of the house of Jeff Bezos. And they probably ordered that guillotine on Amazon. Like, when <laughs> I know they that, built being, it. I don't no, I'm being <laughs> facetious. I'm being facetious. But the, the point being this idea that, oh, the people who are wealthy have stolen it from us. It's like, actually, that wealth comes from your decision to support what they created every single day. Mm-hmm. If you want to take all of Jeff Bezos' money away, literally just stop using Amazon. If every single human stopped using Amazon, the stock price would plummet to zero mm-hmm. and he would have no wealth or whatever little wealth. Most of his wealth is stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people like what he created and i don't think they realized that he had to create it like if there were not jeff bezos if you swapped him out from day one with a random person from a lottery right amazon wouldn't be what it is today it would have failed or maybe at best case scenario sell some books Mm -hmm. which is to say if you like what amazon gives you you have to give some of that credit to jeff bezos for making it and i see a lot of people tend to hate on the thing or hate on the person, but get as much value as they can from the thing they created. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we've mentioned this before, but I think one of the things that gets me about America in particular is where we draw the line in this terms is of- This my second point. This is, yeah. I'm glad you brought it up. So go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, there's a common thread and people have talked, you know, millionaires shouldn't exist. And then some people are like, ah, oh, million, billionaires shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of wealth that they think is too much for any individual to have is more than they have. Yeah, always. Always. But what they fail to recognize, and the, the 1% has got it, but if you look at the world, many of the people making these claims are top 5%, if not top 1% of financial advantage, mm-hmm. which is to say that they had a roof over their heads growing up, clean water, earned more than $2 a day, which puts them in the top half of people. And so the idea that um, despite that they're in the top 5%, that they can look to people who have more and insist that they give, but not do that same reflection on themselves, because what they'd find in themselves is, well, I'm barely making ends meet. And it's like, well, wait a second, is it possible, and I know this sounds crazy, that millionaires feel the same way? as insane as that might sound to you, that a millionaire with BMW payments and a giant mansion who can't imagine scaling back 
it might, and not always, some have excess and might feel this, but could have that same feeling of how I can't do with less mm -hmm. that you have. And that if you were to go to India well, and that person were to look at you. If you took a person from Africa that doesn't have access to clean yes. water, that looks at you in a, temp a comfortable climate, car that you eating, own eating at yeah, least yeah, yeah. once every day yeah with 500 square feet to call your own would go why doesn't this person just spend 50 dollars less on rent and give 50 dollars to us so that we can drink water that doesn't give us tumors yes and and the willingness to as we've mentioned look to the left on the bell curve which is to say to recognize not only the people that have more than you but the vast array of people that have less i think better equips you to solve the problems of the world because the first problem you'll solve is how do i deal with the fact that i'm unwilling to sacrifice and when you solve that problem then you could teach jeff bezos mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean because he he might have that same difficulty it'll also cool your anger a little bit i think a lot of today's politics runs on anger you know what i mean hatred for the billionaires or hatred for the police or hatred for people that don't have the same skin color as you and i think if you look to the left recognize how many people are worse off than you recognize the difficult decision that you're being put to which is should I take $10 a month and buy 100 mosquito nets from the Against the Malaria Foundation or should I keep it for that, that $10 for myself? Then when you look to the person that's got a million dollars or a billion dollars, you can't have the same violent hatred for them. Mm -hmm. You have to on some level go, I still don't like what you're doing because you do have more than me and we should do it in the same way we do taxes with a marginal increase, but you can no longer go, that person's an evil reptile. Mm -hmm. Nothing like me. And if I were them, I'd be totally different. You know what I mean? Because you realize that you are them to some degree. And so, yeah, I would say in some, that was my, uh, in coming back to the Communist Manifesto after 10 or more years, that was what I was struck by, mm -hmm. was this sense that at the time what I believed, and I think is implicit in some of the arguments that I hear, is that the people who run these corporations are greedy, selfish, and self-absorbed in a way that is different to me and my Friends. group of people. Mm -hmm. And what you realize is that their scale is just bigger. <laughs> sure. they're, they're often, and, and so listen, are there people that take advantage at the highest degrees of power and we hear about them? Yes, but that person also exists in a middle-class neighborhood where he cheats on his wife and you know, like, like yeah, takes yeah. advantage in the ways that are available to him. And that person also exists in the poor neighborhood. Um, and I will, I'll steel man it a little bit. It might be possible that in order to ascend to the absolute highest tier of capital capitalist success that you do need to have more greed selfishness etc than the average person i think that is i think that is a plausible yeah hypothesis. i agree with that because i've always said if any, as soon as my business got to the level of like you know tens of millions of dollars mm -hmm. i would sell it if, yes. I, if i were jeff bezos and someone was like hey i'll give you 30 million dollars for amazon like it's yours. Yeah, yeah. I would never grow it to be a trillion dollars because I would just sell out. Yes, but it doesn't mean that every billionaire, et cetera, um, isn't in fact a good person. So, I mean, well, I'm I actually think they're probably driven less by material greed than by a deep feeling that they're not good enough and that being worth more money will solve that would be my or, guess. Or helping more people. In the case of Elon Musk, it seems that I'm sure he cares about money, but it seems what his impact and legacy seems to be more important to him. Sure, it's either a scorecard, yeah. you don't feel good, you want to help. I'm just saying, when you get to 100 mil, there, there's literally nothing, I think, that somebody's like, I need that 200 mil for this specific thing I'm going to buy. Hmm. Like, that's actually not what motivates them. I would argue that what the things they think about buying are businesses, islands. You know what I mean? I actually disagree. Because really? I've seen it in my own life that uh, 
I was convinced many years ago when we first started our business that the magic number for me was before taxes, $3,000 a month, mm-hmm. such that if I earned $3,000 a month, that was $36,000 a year, I could pay the amount of taxes on that, which is not tremendous, and then live in Latin America, and I'd get a tiny room and live with five roommates, mm-hmm. and that would be enough. And what I've watched is as I eclipsed that, I had a new thing, yeah. and a new thing, and I haven't watched it stop. What Are I have, you making more than three grand a month now? I am making more than three grand a Mazel month. Mazel What I have done is artificially be like, no, no more, but I still feel the urge, that desire for more. So I actually don't know that it goes away. I think, and, and what I see is it just scales up. You go, oh, I never thought I could own a home. Like who yeah, thought yeah, I could, yeah, I yeah, never yeah. thought I'd own a home, man. I thought I'd rent to the day I died. I could own a home. Like, yeah. well, that's a new tier of thing. And I think Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, they just go, I never thought I could own Apple too. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I own Apple. Um, so I do think that it continues forever. Interesting. Unless you unless you make a unless you just go no more. I will not, and that's what I'm trying to do right now in my own life is be like no, can't no. Yeah. <laughs> not well, you can still earn more. Just keep giving it to charity. Sure, sure. That's that's a possibility. Speaking of communism and how it always works <laughs> out well, guess who just found out there are concentration camps in China? Yeah. I don't know a lot of the details, so I'm not equipped to talk about this very educatedly. But I just wanted to say it on the podcast because I literally didn't know this till like a couple days ago. China just has concentration camps allegedly where they're just doing holocaust stuff but because they're not invading foreign countries people are totally cool to ignore it and buy their cheap goods i would even suggest and i don't know a ton about china if you are a friend also of the if C- i go missing yeah it's absolutely the if CCP. you're a friend of the ccp and you disagree please come on because i i am speaking a bit out of uh, my my level of understanding here but oh yeah i'm trying to make that clear i yeah. know you mentioned you, if they, I think they're allowed to invade foreign countries. <laughs> I think they just have to do it slowly. Like, I think they're allowed to mess with Tibet. Tibet doesn't count. You know, Taiwan isn't actually a foreign country. Yeah. Uh, Hong, Hong Kong isn't a separate city. You know, like. The, well, this is what was crazy. So this was, we talked a little bit about this, but what's crazy, I literally didn't know this was happening. And apparently there's concentration camps with a million Muslims in it just getting absolutely brutalized. The NBA is going to let players put a message on their back, Right for um, social movements, right? So you can wear Black Lives Matter, you can wear I Am A Man, it represents a sanitation union in Memphis that someone's gonna wear. You cannot wear Free Hong Kong, which is to say, as, as a society, apparently America has just decided that the power that China has, what we get from them with trade, is just, we just turn a blind eye to anything they do. Mm-hmm. Because the NBA is like, well, we can't lose China viewership, guys. That's a lot of money. So you can't wear Free Hong Kong. What it exposes is that the driving force behind, I think, ethics, uh, as, at least as practiced by corporations and I think by people as well, is economic mm-hmm. in the sense that, yeah, sure, like, is this one socially viable? Like, at the second that Black Lives Matter became not uh, economically defensible, the NBA would not let people put it on their back. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. as soon as that flipped on them. Well, the criticism to Nike is the opposite, that Nike basically tries to use Black Lives Matter to make more money. Sure, sure. Yeah, the, the, listen, the, the social movement, all of that is allowed to operate insofar as uh, power is not disrupted. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so that's, that's the big thing. So if you like, what you can't say is end NBA exploitation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, obviously, because the NBA won't allow it. So this is this is one thing that I do think that um, was interesting in that phase of my life where I, 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 I mean, and I still think he's an interesting guy to read, reading Noam Chomsky, anarchists, 
I guess he's a syndocalanarchist. He's got a strange title for himself. But uh, if you think you're making progress and it's coming easy, you're probably not making progress against the actual structure of power mm. is kind of his point. You know what I mean? Like if, you, if, like, if you're proud, and, and maybe you could argue that this Black Lives Matter thing hasn't come easy, in which case, okay, maybe there has been a shift. Uh, but I don't know. Can you do raise the corporate tax rate? on your back can you like uh you know hedge fund managers should pay more than 15 percent on capital capital gains gains (laughs) taxed as income um i don't think that that the nba vetted the things that they would be allowed to have and yeah china that china's not in there uh raising corporate tax rate isn't on there a lot of the things that threaten uh genuine genuine bastions of power aren't are not there yeah we've gone bad on billionaires a little bit can i tell you something cool i found did we go bad? I thought we went pretty nice on them. Well, just that money. I guess like what we were just saying that like the people that run the NBA are gonna. Well, this is. I guess. Well, let, let me tie that. Yes, yes. Go. But this is my point. They are making the same decisions that you would make, which is to say, if you let your kids self-express and they're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna get a tattoo that says fuck you, Dad," you'd be like, "No, you're not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not yeah. in my home. You're not." Like you, or or it's like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna carve it into my door." It's like, no, you can like put the, your favorite band on your door or like this. Yeah. But you can't like you can't the, carve, the same decisions. Yes. The same decisions that these billionaires are making are the same ones that we make in the in the areas of our life that we have power, which sure. is we don't willingly give up our power. Yeah. Uh, it's to be expected. So go ahead. Uh, Jack Dorsey, co-founder of Twitter. Gave away a bunch of money. He's, he's uh, tr- going to an experiment with universal basic income. So basically, whenever universal basic income gets brought up, the people who are against it say, you can't do that. It would demotivate people. Mm. It would create sloth. It would create crime. It would create drug addicts, whatever it is. That's, those are the arguments against universal basic income is that people need to go out and work and earn their money we've even talked about this and so he's gonna what he's saying is we don't know everyone keeps talking about this like you can talk about it in scandinavia but it's different there i'm gonna just do it so he's just picking out people and he's just giving them whatever he thinks is enough supplemental income such that in five years or ten years they can look at what has occurred Mm. and then present it to the government and go this is what happened you guys should never do this every one of them became drug addicts or actually this gave them enough money that they could go into higher education. And so I picked only people with high school degrees. They all got college degrees because yeah. they didn't have to work. Now they all make six figures. It's been great. So interesting. Yeah, I just thought that was really cool because he we've all, everybody's heard people talk about, oh, we, we can do this. We can't do this. It would work. It wouldn't work. And he's just going, I don't know, but I'll spend five million dollars to figure it out. Very cool. Yeah. I dig that. It's uh, I like these little experiments and, and I'm some people I'm sure in Seattle didn't like jazz chop taking over their neighborhood, but like part of me at the time was like okay let's see if it works you know okay didn't work <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? like okay people are getting shot to death. yeah uh let's let's disband but uh i'm i'm i don't think that anyone knows what for sure what structures will definitely and definitely not work so it's mm-hmm. like these small scale experiments are interesting uh to me at least so i had the handful of other things i have I, so much so you you, we run, could, you run with one I'll, I can save some for next week. Well, remember, you sent me a thing from Tim Ferriss about venison, which I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah. The Maui UI, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Ferriss, the hug of death to these people, I'm sure. Yeah. What they essentially now say gonna, they do. Now we're going to pile on to the hug of death. Yeah, not, not quite. So what they essentially do is there's an invasive species of deer in Hawaii. And I haven't gone deep into it, but it appears that because they uh, don't have natural predators, they spread at a rate that they basically eat all the grass, which causes landslides, which disrupts the reef. And the ecosystem has been uh, 
greatly affected by the fact that there are so many of these deer. Mm-hmm. Now, what this company does is said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hunt these deer, not to extinction, but to keep their numbers within a parameter such that the ecosystem can handle it. Because mm-hmm. they don't, we're basically going to be the natural predator, mm-hmm. which doesn't hunt them completely out. It just hunts them to uh, a number where they're sparser, mm-hmm. basically. They can't sit and graze an entire area. Uh, then we're going to take the, that venison. Because it's completely wild, we're going to have to treat it and deworm it because they have things that animals in slaughterhouses wouldn't have. They're wild animal. And we're going to send the meat to customers, Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting because I haven't had red meat in over two years at this point. Uh, And I think ethically, I think I'm comfortable Mm -hmm. with that. Uh, And I was curious if I'm missing something that I shouldn't, but it it looks like what they do is they hunt these deer at night with like tracking things. So they're essentially just living their life until boom, they're out. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're wild up until the last second. Well, it's also fascinating because they they do it silently so as not to disrupt the herd's sleep. So this, the herd just wakes up and two of them are just down <laughs> oh my God. and the herd just goes away and then they collect the Jesus. bodies. Yeah. Um, so I hope that deer don't mourn too much, but, but the point is, uh, we need to feed people and I'm not saying that, that this is the best way, but it is certainly a way to get meat that appears far more humane mm-hmm. than our current slaughterhouses. And this can't be scaled. Can I give you the one the one potential problem with it? I, I can think of one, but go for it. Uh, so, and I agree. I think it looks great. <laughs> I ordered some. The problem when Tim Ferriss promotes it is what happens when they go, okay, once a week, we're going to kill one deer. That's the number that yeah, we've yeah, come yeah. up with magically. And by the way, we don't have the demand for it. Yeah, so yeah. that we're going to kill that one deer or two deer, we're gonna ship what meat we can, and then what we ha- whatever we don't have, we'll just bury. But yeah. we're not doing it to harvest the meat. We're literally doing it because two deer a week need to die for population. And all of a sudden they get an order for 10 deer a week mm, yeah, yeah, on yeah. subscription every week. Are they going to refund eight people or eight deer, or are they going to come up with a reason why 10 deer suddenly makes sense? Yes. That is the likely that is the risk so what i will tell you is that the only chance that it remains ethical is if it remains privately owned because as soon as it becomes a publicly owned company Mm -hmm. they have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits i have which is to service every customer that you could have i know i know you're a huge fan of small government but i actually think their best chance at remaining ethical is if there's government restrictions yeah which is to say if the person deciding how much how many deer can die? Uh, well, I also month? just just to check. I don't know that I'm. I don't know how I feel about small versus big government. Oh, okay. What? Well, so anyway, I think that the the way it would work out well is if the government of Hawaii was telling them how many deer they could kill a month, mm-hmm. and then the person making the decision wasn't profiting off the increased demand. Yep. And then I think it could work because they go, well, we have twenty. They go refund ten. I don't care. I will yeah, literally yeah. shut your company down if I find eleven dead deer. Yeah, in a yeah, month. yeah, yeah. And they go, okay. So that's the best hope I think that they have. But yeah, if they're the ones making their own decisions, they would have to be exceptionally moral to be one of the rare, there are people like this, but one of the rare companies that would just go, no, nope, we're gonna cap our revenue. We will not grow beyond this because this is the number we came up with before the demand showed up. Yeah, you have to silo that. And what's interesting is I don't know how well it's worked, but like one of the things that Google realized is that they had to silo their search algorithm from their ads people because what drew people to use Google was that the quality of the searches was the best in the world. Mm. Where they make their money 
is by selling ads mm -hmm. and disrupting that process. Yep. You know what I mean? Like they, they Amazon's get... screwing this up a little bit. When, when you search a product on Amazon now, there's like six sponsored things. You have yeah. to scroll down to get to the, mm -hmm. I'm like, I just want to know actually what I would get if I weren't being dealt with yeah. this non-organic traffic. Well then, and then what people have subsequently found is like, oh, that's interesting. Like they have them on separate sides of the Mountain View campus. They're not supposed to. But then you see things like there was the study that was done on how Hillary was represented in search results versus how Trump was represented mm -hmm. in search results. And this didn't require anything other than searching their name. And you could see that uh, it was considerably more reason that like the autocomplete with Hillary did not include Benghazi. It was nice. And the autocomplete with Donald had things and it seemed to be tampered with. You see this with Steven Crowder. Yes, and and so this is the thing. So I guess the point that I'm making is you said government, and this is where I think the role of government is, because even when these private entities try to mm -hmm. silo things, you can't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. eventually there's just too much temptation, to be like just this one time. It's a Benghazi deal. was we stupid. We, we can't, can't let Trump yeah, be president. Yeah. We have to do this. Or, or you just like, listen, Benghazi's overblown. Like people are searching for that. We cannot feed fake this fake news. We just strike that from the autocomplete, even yeah. though people are searching for it. Uh, and I think that temptation is just, it's too high. And mm -hmm. now then the problem is the way that people get around this is with lobbyists. You know what I mean? Yeah, they go, yeah. hey, we live in separate buildings, but what if we hung out more? You know what I mean? Um, and I forget who said this, but one of the, the, the most difficult problem is essentially that we are, we are uh, evolved to live nepotistically, which is to say we evolved to favor our friends and family our genetics especially our genetics yeah. especially yeah. yeah yeah and go like i don't care if you're not as smart as the next kid like you're chief <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. like i don't care if this isn't ethical like you're going to do this so what we're bumping up against is the fact that we have uh an innate evolutionary desire to connect with our lobbyist buddy and mm -hmm. do him a favor and and do all of his things oh but yeah if hawaii's society... government is determining that number yeah. you honeypot the hawaiian government yeah you send in your sexy <laughs> whatever they're attracted yeah. to that's Hey, you want to get lunch? And I want to talk about this deer cap thing. Yes. And so what you're struggling with is this evolved, innate desire to treat those who you know better than strangers, which is appropriate, except you're also making decisions for tens of millions of people in yeah, some yeah. cases. And it's like, how do you handle that? Uh, it's not there's it's not obvious. <laughs> you know, you try to keep people separate, but they're like, no, we'll just make buddies. Yeah. But um, no, I like that deer thing. It seemed cool. Yeah. You had one? Oh, yeah, I have so much. Let me pull up the list. Oh, so Henner Gracie. You want to talk oh, about Henner Gracie? My goodness. So this is going to be potentially contentious, but Henner Gracie is a guy I follow because he's incredible at jujitsu. He's incredible at teaching jujitsu, okay? We should link to some videos, Justin, if you don't mind. Uh, do Henner wrestling an NFL or jujitsuing an NFL player? Do Henner. Uh, Henner Korean Zombie is fascinating. Henner Korean, Korean Zombie is a black belt in jujitsu and a professional UFC fighter. And Henner just gets to toy with him. And do the one where I think Henner uses no arms. <laughs> <laughs> do the one where Henner ties an arm behind his back. Oh, uh, he can beat two people with one arm. It, he goes two yeah, on one. He goes two on one and he has one arm. Yes. I think it's two black belts. Anyway, Henner Gracie is a amazing person. To Unreal like jujitsu. Jiu yeah. Unreal. Uh, but go ahead. So separately, what he does is he teaches police how to grapple so that they don't have to rely on their guns or beating people with batons. And they can instead, in his words, subdue people nonviolently without hurting them. OK, so the NYPD police reform bill criminalizes what he calls nonviolent control tactics. Those are his words. And uh, this is a problem because lawmakers who they don't understand what they're legislating about, basically. So this came across this came out because 
you know, some people were being choked to death or were dying because their diaphragm was being crushed. And so in an attempt to prevent that, basically what they, they criminalized a lot of things. Some maybe should be criminalized, but one of them was any pressure on the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. If you, if you do jujitsu or you do MMA, you know that some of the best control techniques is side control, full mount and knee on belly, which Mm -hmm. is to say you can, without hurting someone, control them in that position for an extended period of time. And then when you get up, they'll be unharmed. Mm-hmm. versus punching them in the head till they're unconscious so that they tasing them right and so what he's saying is yeah. in an in an effort to prevent these things that may or may not um be too aggressive they have also made illegal these non-violent safe control tactics and so now if you're the nypd and someone is running instead of tackling them and getting in full mount to control them you basically have to tase them or shoot them in the leg or mm-hmm. let them go. Yeah. And I don't think that citizens in New York want you to just let violent criminals escape if they're faster than you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, the people doing the laws, they don't know jujitsu and they've never been police and probably they've never been criminals. Mm-hmm. And so they have no idea what's on. Certainly not running criminals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, <Sure>. the kind, <laughs> not, yeah. not the <laughs> kind of criminals that get arrested. Yeah, not the kind that run away. And so, no, I just think it's interesting because I do, I could imagine at a high level that that is a real problem, which is to say you have legislators making restrictions for police without having ever been on either side yeah. of pol- being a police so officer. have never been in a physical altercation in their life. And I've only done a little bit of jujitsu, but I've had a knee on my belly. I put a knee on someone's belly. I've been choked. I've done all of these things. And I'm pretty sure in jujitsu studios across America and the world, every single day, these techniques are practiced in safe ways. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you would want a knee on belly for five minutes. And I mean, quite frankly, that's not a reasonable way to control someone in jujitsu anyway. Like knee on belly is a is oftentimes a intermediate place that one. Play, sure. that well, let's say side control, which is something you could, is you could do for so ten. Safe. You could do for ten yeah, minutes. You control. could restrict someone with no weapons for ten minutes, the th- and they would be fine. And and the other thing is I think it's confused mount with diaphragm crushing. So mount is a position where somebody is laying down either face down or on their back and you are basically sitting on their belly button. Now, you can be in this position and you could imagine if your knees are on the ground, you don't have to put weight on mm-hmm. their belly button or you could depending on how that situation flows. How they move basically. How, how, they, how move. they move is going to dictate where you put your weight. So it seems to me that uh, we talk about this. We had a conversation today that we'll put up after all of this. You you would correctly pointed out that if you misdiagnose the problem, mm-hmm. your solution will make things worse in many cases. This is a misdiagnosis of the problem. The if pro- Henner is to be believed, I okay uh, with my very limited jujitsu knowledge and having yeah to, yeah. Uh, well, the question I have for the legislators is what remains. So, like, just put yourself in this position. Yeah. Someone has just robbed someone at gunpoint, or someone has shot someone in the leg and is running away and you and I have tackled them now that I cannot do side control full mount knee on belly what am I to do you can still hit someone with a baton I can hit them with a baton you can, I can tase, tase them. them I can shoot them with a gun what other control mechanisms do I have left and I, I think that's not something that they've thought about and instead they just see someone will die from something and they go okay we're gonna ban that and we're gonna ban anything that looks like it yeah anything that resembles it you know what i mean yeah yeah it seems to me that the the again the issue appears to be poor police training which is that people and in a jujitsu i would never if someone was screaming i can't breathe sit on them further you know what i mean i you could sit up into a mount position you have you have different ways to maintain control without choking someone Mm -hmm. or or uh disabling them from taking an inhale 
but or maybe it, you put a time limit on it exactly maybe you, you put certain like there's shit that's illegal in mma you know what i mean mm-hmm. you can't put your finger in someone's eye socket yeah, so yeah, you're yeah, saying yeah. a cop can't do that like i'm not <laughs> saying you just let them do whatever they want mm-hmm. um but i just think in general everyone should think it's dangerous to have people legislating on things that they don't understand well this is true we could talk about this could be worse yeah this could be worse for the people being arrested Dude, let's say more people get tased do you know what happens when you get tased you fall from as tall as you are with nothing to break your fall yeah and your hands are stuck your so hands seize and you hit your head like we're still allowed to tase people yeah like this is what i'm saying this is this might be worse for police and criminals because yes. the people making the rules don't understand yes but uh, the people making the rules are just trying to pander to their audience so that they get reelected. i had the same thought and we don't need to go deep into this it's been a while when i watched the mark zuckerberg hearing when they talked about calibra which is a a, a cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and it was all of these 60 year olds 70 year olds that have no idea yeah. about the internet let alone cryptocurrency uh, and it was like, man, these are, <laughs> uh, we've talked about this. Do you want your representatives to be representative of you? Or do you want them to be intelligent and smarter than the average person? Yeah. Because what I would argue is that they're representative <laughs> of, of people in America, but they're not experts or, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, I don't, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Uh, no, I yeah. just thought it was interesting. I think people people may be celebrating reform because they don't understand it, and it's actually making things more dangerous for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's I I think that's it for the stuff that I have right now. Do you have anything else? It's totally unrelated and it's not uh, time sensitive. So cool. do you want to just go to fan questions? Yeah, let's do fan questions because okay. this is getting a little long. Well, this is the uh, so this is the same guy. He had two questions. I was just happened to be on our podcast, and I like these questions. So first of all, amazing podcast. Thank you, sir. Thanks. I have a question. Is wealth a zero-sum game? With mm. wealth disparity increasing, do you believe we are heading into a cliche dystopian future where a few corporations control everything? I think it's obvious that wealth is not a zero-sum game because there would be as much wealth as there was on day one of the planet Earth as there is today. Agreed. And clearly, there's more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're watching this podcast via the internet, mm-hmm. wealth is not a zero-sum game. Um, and no it, matter how poor you are today, even if you're the bottom 1% in America, food is easier to access for you than the bottom 1% of America from, let's say, 1800. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Still sucks. You can buy it. You don't want to be, you don't kill be it. the bottom 1%. <laughs> you can buy it. But yes, like every like a rising tide has raised all ships, in my opinion. And I think wealth is not a zero-sum game. Sure, maybe despite not. The fact, and, I would, and by the way, yeah. I think that the wealth gap could increase to a level it's never been at before. But still the lowest level of poverty would be better than the lowest level of poverty in the past which is to say even with the disparity increasing wealth isn't a zero-sum game and people are benefiting from the wealth of society but what i would say in that case is that the uh human element of frustration could make that a worse society because wealth inequality is what drives you could be happier while you starve to death yeah no doubt so uh what was the second part of the question definitely not a zero-sum game uh, are we heading to a dystopian future where a few corporations control the world? Are we not there? I'm confused. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, remove dystopian, right? I'm, no value judgment. No value judgment. Are we heading to a world where a small amount of corporations control the world? Uh, so I'm going to try to, I, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'll look at the arc of history. The arc of history is that there was no centralized power. There was just individual tribes and power games fighting against nature and each other. And what has happened is then a government formed and it consolidated power and then it formed a business. And they. And so it, it seems that power has tended, at least since the early days, to consolidate. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, even to some um, extent, the EU is not perfect, but like France and Germany used to just fight all the time, and now they haven't since World War II invaded each yeah, other. Well, like the, the idea of the United Nations uh, 10,000 years ago is insane. Yeah. That's, that this group of people over such a vast continent would listen to a handful of people and follow their laws and cross when only the stop sign said you could is, is bonkers. Yeah. So I don't know that it's actually necessarily dystopian to say that power consolidates now do i want amazon running the world no <laughs> you know like i think what you want is power that answers more reactively to the populace over which it governs and i think the problem with amazon is that it's not one person one vote it's like look amazon has done really well during the pandemic which is to say the votes for Amazon are coming in, but that's not like society isn't improving as a result of Amazon's mm. lot improving. And it could be that only 10% of Americans used Amazon, but Amazon grew in power. So what you want is not necessarily, it's not that consolidating power is bad. It's that consolidating power without a mechanism uh, by which it is influenced from the governed is a problem. Sure. There's also a chance that we just head towards a VR AI driven world where there's no more th resource scarcity doesn't exist anymore, which is to mm -hmm. say maybe a couple corporations would actually run the entire planet, but your own experience would be have as much serotonin as you'd like infinite, yeah, 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 an yeah. infinite resource society designed by yourself in your fleeting moments in reality prime mm -hmm. before you just got back into VR. Which might be amazing. We for might everybody. not even be in reality. Prime, yeah, no, no. no so my point is, that's, that's my <laughs> we point. might like, be there right now. Will power consider, uh, consolidate? Like, absolutely. Will corporations play a bigger and bigger role? Will corporations have as much power as major governments? Mm -hmm. I think yes. All that's true. Oh, it's certain. They already do. Will there's, be, there's corporations that are far bigger than many governments. Yes. Like, will it be to your detriment? Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. So the dystopian is the only part that's a question. <laughs> yep. So it's another same person. I just thought it was a really good question. How do you eliminate comparison syndrome? You guys made a great point about some countries not even having hot showers. We take a lot for granted living in a first world country. I find myself feeling this on a wider scale, including possessions, appearance, lifestyle. I feel like if I owned a planet and everyone in my circle <laughs> owned five, I would feel inadequate. And I think that's a very common feeling and I respect you for you're writing You're dead it. right. Well, you're dead right. I mean, what's, I mean. Well, I respect the self-awareness though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a great question. Uh, this is a great question. One that I still think about work on uh, and ha and I, I'm not at the bottom of it. Um, I've made a handful of what I would describe as behavior level changes that help. And I think the behavioral changes are not to be thrown out, but they certainly don't do everything. Mm -hmm. So one is that I have limited my intake of an, of an aspirational lifestyle that I know won't make me happy. So I don't have cable. And when I go home to my family's house, TLC might be on, you'll see the Kardashians, it's those realtor things where you're looking at these beautiful homes. And when I see those, I can be triggered into like, I want that, mm -hmm. I want that. But in my normal life, I actually don't experience too much of that. Same thing with like amazing food channels that people like to mm -hmm. watch. Like I try not to trigger myself into wanting more than I have. Uh, and one big thing is to get rid of cable. That'll mm -hmm. help a ton because cable is TV shows to tell you what to want filled with commercials that tell you what to want. Yeah, well even beyond that, uh, you and I don't really consume Instagram. Mm -hmm. That's so, huge. So I don't see, yeah, like yeah, my yeah. friends I'm sure are posting crazy things yeah, of them yeah, with yeah. sports cars or whatever else it might be. I have no idea. I try very, very hard not to consume Instagram. Yeah. And if I, I used to follow things like fitness Instagram pages because I thought they would inspire me. Mm -hmm. And I used to follow professional surfers because I want to learn how to be a better surfer. And they made me feel 
bad such that I could have a good surf session, feel happy with my progress, watch it and go, I'm not there yet. And then not like myself. Mm -hmm. I have unfollowed every page that makes me feel a negative emotion. Yeah. So now that you put it that way, what I have to say is these behavioral changes are massive because when I compare myself to someone who hasn't done these, I'm at such an advantage. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want so many things that other people want. I used to look at these Instagram fitness people and go, oh man, my arms are so small. Oh man, I'm so, I'm not as attractive as this guy. Oh man, I'm in bad shape. This person doesn't even look like this. This is a Photoshop photo of them oiled up with light. Last time you felt like that was probably God knows when. You haven't even seen anyone that was bigger than you in quarantine. Like (laughs) no, no, exactly. Oh no, I'm probably the smallest arms I've had in a decade, and I just have no idea because I don't even go to the gym because it's closed. So I, Um, so I, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I have shut down any media that makes me feel this this negative comparison and what's which important, is mostly instagram and tv what's important to recognize is that is the job of media because if you think of what media does it's uh, the way the economy runs is that it uh, inspires you to feel a need and you could say creates that need mm-hmm. and then sells you, you sells you on it and so you work to to fill that need which won't ultimately make you happy so yeah generally media is is troubling um that doesn't solve the problem because you will still, and I've seen this in my own life, even though you will be better for not wanting the car and yeah. the clothes and the thing, you will find things that other people have that you want, uh, attention that people receive, et cetera. And then this is a, this is where you get to the self inner looking stuff. Can Go I ahead. share two other yeah, practices? Yeah, yeah. So one, a gratitude journal for me, very, very helpful. There's five minute journal. We're not affiliated, but I think it's great. Eventually it wears out. I think all journaling at some point like has diminishing returns. But that was super helpful for me because it forces you to be grateful every day for three things. And sometimes it's the best sales day you've had, but other days you're like, what am I grateful for? Always sunny out today. Mm -hmm. Like you're forced to acknowledge small gratitudes. That was huge for me. And the other thing is look left on the bell curve, which is to Mm -hmm. say purposefully, and you can do this with phone reminders if you have to like find times to watch about other people in the world, people that live in other places that don't have what you have because Mm -hmm. In addition to blocking out Instagram and all the stuff that makes you look right at the more rich, more attractive people, if you remember how fortunate you are, no matter who you are, by looking at all the people who uh, just haven't gotten it as good as you do. I find that 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 was really helpful for me in making me just grateful to be wherever I was. You know what I mean? No matter where I was. So those are two habits that I thought were were really good for this. Mm hmm. Yeah, and all of those will make huge, huge, huge strides, like monumental in terms of saving you money and like the, uh, stress, anxiety, yeah, ton of stress. That's what that is. That yeah, thing yeah. that you think is perfectionism or whatever, as you aspire to look like these people or have what they have, is just anxiety, anxiety and it's unworthiness. Fi- it's finding a way to work itself out when you finally get to the gym. Yeah, uh, but the comparison will still come up, and so mm-hmm. I, I haven't rooted it out. It's not zero in my own life. Uh, I do think that uh, this is I the reason that I did emotional mastery is because I do think that so many of the answers to the questions that I have and that you have is look inside, yeah. look inside, look inside. And there's certain exercises that work better than others. Um, and I'm still doing new ones and discovering and the emotional mastery isn't intended to be a one stop shop, but it is a really, really good start, in my opinion. Um, so it's brand new. It's updated. Check that out. But generally speaking, uh, the the thing that makes you compare and want more is the belief that you don't have enough and aren't enough. Mm-hmm. That is the core belief that you're not enough exactly as you are. And you got to unravel that. <laughs> that that is the ultimate thing is to sit with that belief for long enough to see that it's not true, that you are enough, that you have always been enough, that all you did was trick yourself into that the idea that you weren't enough and that if you accrued more uh, attention, stuff, 
people who liked you that somehow you would be improved and that and that none of that is true um getting that on a base level project i'm still working on and when i you know adding modules to emotional mastery as i go um but one thing that has actually helped me and you mentioned a handful of small things is russell brand had a a quote because i uh, it's helpful to see people who actually have i still struggle with this despite having everything you think you want he was in logan paul's podcast and he told logan he's like i was really nervous before this i was really nervous to meet you i was like thinking i, I hope this guy likes me i hope you know and you go russell brand is trying to impress logan paul yeah, yeah but he said one of the things that i always tell myself and i get nervous before all of these is that uh this, these people have nothing to offer me they have nothing to give me mm-hmm. which isn't like fuck these people it's just like there's nothing that you could say or do that would add to me <laughs> you know so all that i could do is just hang out and enjoy mm-hmm. my time with you um and i think that's that's been a useful mantra at certain times for me as well which is like i have nothing to gain from this mm-hmm. nothing to gain from this thing or this improvement this person yeah uh are we tight on time i have a question that's not a fan question it's a question for okay. you charlie hooper okay uh because you just said you're always working on yourself do you want to talk at all about this book you're reading about loneliness? It sounded interesting. I like it. Yeah, gosh, sorry, Justin, you're fucked. <laughs> um, no, I thought it's. I thought it's it a great book. fascinating. It's a great yeah. book. Teal Swan, um, the anatomy of loneliness is what. What was the aspect? It's. It's got so much. What was the aspect that you thought was interesting? So we were just discussing about in your own. This person talks about the different ways that people cope with loneliness, basically, and the mm. strategies you've used in the past and the pros and cons of them basically and okay. i just thought it was really interesting and i think um other people might find it interesting to learn what you're learning sure so this is this is cutting edge for me so uh, the reason that i don't often talk about this except to ben is because i could change my mind in four days but I'll, yeah. I'll state it um so i mentioned my mdma experience in one of the last podcasts and in some that experience was an exploration of the reasons that i had for not being loving and not connecting and those reasons were it hurt <laughs> it was upsetting uh, when that connection was severed, it was devastating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was an exploration of the reasons that I don't connect. And so what's interesting is I often go into these books, exercises, psychedelic journeys with the idea of like, I'm going to become love. I'm going to connect more. And what was useful for me was to go, oh, wow, this is part of the acceptance. Here I am trying to change myself to be more loving instead of starting where I fucking am and having the good grace to explore and be like, well, why am I like this? Mm. And what do you find? There's great reasons that need to be recognized and understood. And I mentioned to you that one of the strategies that I hadn't recognized that I was using was in uh, limiting the degree to which I was reliant on any particular individual, Mm -hmm. such that there wasn't a single point of failure in terms of my love and connection. So what that meant was you and I used to talk every day, live together, you were my 100% of the time was with you. And if you would have been hit by a bus or changed your life path mm-hmm. or got a girlfriend. Yeah, I literally just got, got a girlfriend. Said, I wanna go back to Wall Street yeah, yeah, yeah. and marry my ex. That would have been emotionally devastating mm-hmm. because I was heavily invested. And I didn't recognize what I, what I thought that I was doing, which made sense to me was, oh, I'll just, need Ben less and then I'll get a girl and I'll need her this amount I'll have my brother I'll need him this amount mm-hmm. and I'll just have several people that all feel like 20s out of 100 yeah and so let's dive mm-hmm. into this because I think a lot of people think that sounds really smart and if, and for a while up until a few weeks ago I was like smart this like I'm diversified exactly. <laughs> I'm yeah. diversified and what she suggests that I think is the truth is that that's just defense that's mm-hmm. that's just um I don't mean to be mean to myself that's 
that's cowardice. That is an unwillingness to experience the beauty of life for fear of the sadness mm -hmm. of life. Um, and that was one of the things that I took from reading this book is like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to get to the, whatever my next level is of openness to total connection to the degree that it could rip me apart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it does seem like this uh, hedging, this diversification, this portfolio of caring is the mind's way of protecting my heart. Yeah. Uh, and I don't have the answer. That's yeah, why. Yeah. No, but that's actually the part I thought people would find interesting. Is yeah. like a lot of people have been hurt by parents yeah. or kids or loved ones in relationships. And they hear this strategy and they think, oh, that's a, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Like, just make everyone important enough that they're important, but never important enough to hurt you. I think that's probably something a lot of people go like, yeah, mm -hmm. if I don't have that already, I want that. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea that that comes at a cost, I think, is something that people may not realize because I think let's not call it cowardice but let's say it is defensive it is a defensive strategy that's mm -hmm. the whole point of it it's like I don't want to get hurt again mm -hmm. and I just think it's interesting to consider that per perhaps it's like when you go into prevent defense in football yeah and then you get scored on faster yeah, than yeah. ever before it's kind of like yeah this defensive thing is actually coming at a, a big cost you know yeah um, I think it's just interesting I thought I think people would love to I mean I'll just speak for myself I'd love to hear as you dive into that Yes, so what I do feel the the I feel confident that the lesson that I took is twofold. One, we've we talked I don't know if it's gonna be on the main podcast, but at Patreon at least, we talked extensively about acceptance today yeah. and whether acceptance and this was an experience of like, oh wow, I can be oriented towards love and connection and not be accepting of myself mm. because I'm going, no, I'm gonna get to love as opposed to being like, no, tell me where you are, Charlie, right now mm -hmm. emotionally, which is defensive to these things. Mm -hmm. And the actual loving act is diving into the defensiveness, assuming that it has a positive purpose, exploring it and not trying to change it. Because one of the things that I experienced is when I try to change it, this part of me locks down and hides. It doesn't wanna be seen. Mm. But when I go, you know what, fuck it. You're going to be hateful your whole life. <laughs> you're not going to connect. It's like, okay, now I can talk. Now mm. I can tell you how I feel. But when I know you're trying to root me out for some higher purpose, I will never reveal myself. I'll never come out of the subconscious shadows. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by acceptance is like, you have to go in willing to be like, if you want to be a hateful little disconnected shit to the day you die, I love you so much that I would allow that. Mm. And then it it's like, okay, here I am. Mm. Um and so, yeah, so the first thing is that, wow, one can be oriented at love and connection without uh, truly practicing love and connection towards oneself. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is I think that the answer, as I said, is through. It is not by avoiding my defensiveness. It is by allowing myself to experience my defensiveness and be it for a while and see how it arises in my normal life and see what it feels like. Uh, as it like right now I can feel it being exposed and it doesn't like it mm. you know what I mean it's like okay like here we are this is what it feels like there's this heat in my face right now which which doesn't like it mm. um, but I do think that and and also right now I think I am being tender towards it which is like you don't need to rip it open on camera either like mm -hmm. <laughs> take your time yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah so I that that's the process of like this is what I meant earlier when I meant said understanding, interest, acceptance, and approval mm. uh, being the foundation of love as I understand it. Uh, but yeah, 
That's cool. what I got. I don't have a solution. No, I just thought, <laughs> I, think, I thought it was interesting when we talked about it briefly. It's a great book. It's a great book beyond just that simple point. Um, I think she does a really good job of nailing uh, a lot of the internal stuff. It's very, very good. So What's it called? It's called The Anatomy of Loneliness. If you don't want to jump into emotional mastery and you prefer to start with a book, there's a lot of good ones, quite frankly, but this is a, a one that is um, in part inspired some of the later sections of emotional mastery. Cool. Cool. Oh, we got one more fan one question, more? right? Or two more fan questions? Um, Audience questions? One of them. I mean, it's not like a super long question. I guess it's more for me, honestly. Ah, uh, that's how you... That's <laughs> funny. We always say, yeah, if you want to get your question asked, just make it interesting to Justin. So <laughs> yeah. this guy hacked it. Eliezer just says, if I have a question that's not good, do you want me to bother asking it? And how likely is it to get in a video? And my answer is, yes, ask it, because it's probably not as bad as you think. Um, the more detail you give, the more likely I feel like it'll be in a video because, you know, context gives cool. you guys yeah, more yeah. to work with. There you go, Eliezer. You just got a bad question answered <laughs> on the podcast. You're up for your number two. Uh, awesome. Is that it? Yep. We so did now it. I'll roll the conversation we had with Cameron. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I don't know how much I have to set it up. We spoke to Cameron today. Cameron uh, wanted to, to chime in as somebody who had a different upbringing than us. Cameron is obviously black and you'll see that uh, you'll see that when you look at him in the video and we spoke about Black Lives Matter a number of other things which you can check out now mm-hmm. yeah and also I think there there are sh- Cameron we agreed with largely on a lot of stuff if anybody wants to call in and have more of a disagreement we're open to that this was just the first person who was willing to call in and talk to us but mm-hmm. we're open to different opinions on anything we talk about so if you want to just throw in your information in the description link and say what in particular you want to discuss that you disagree with us, we would love to talk to you. Cameron, thank you for hopping on, my man. Appreciate you having you here. Glad to have. Th- glad I'm glad that you brought me in. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick at all? Give give any context. Um. Yeah. Sure. Uh, hi. My name's Cameron. Uh, I'm 28. I am currently in a university library. That's why I <laughs> currently have a face mask on. Um, yeah, I'm majoring in economics and yeah, just uh, someone who, I guess a, a, a citizen who cares about BLM. Cool. Cool. I said that, I think that black lives matter is, uh, if you look at it, what you see is that there are, the black community is overrepresented in negative outcomes, which include, uh, police brutality experiencing. That was kind of a weird way to phrase that. Yeah. Uh, low income things, uh, uh, criminal activity, et cetera. And the answer is not because something that the color of your skin makes you violent or more likely to do that. The answer is that there's an economic system, as you had started to mention, that uh, has predictable outcomes for people who experience certain structures and systems. But my contention on top of that was that rather than focusing on the fact that the black community is overrepresented in these negative outcomes, what we should do is just collectively address the negative outcomes, which include people who might be white, who might be Asian, who might be all different uh, colors, rather than focusing on the fact that any particular skin color is represented in that that uh, quartile or whatever of worse outcomes. So I'm curious if that's something that you agree with or disagree with, because I know that that's something that, that some of our listeners uh, thought that I was, I was missing something. Yeah. So I guess, I guess, I guess first to Ben's point that, so I'm, so I'm in a relatively small North Texas town. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of black people. So mm-hmm. if I want 
to be part of a large protest, I have to be really more than okay with the fact that I'm still going to be a minority because spoiler alert, I am. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like there's random towns in like middle of nowhere, Texas, where there's maybe, uh, maybe a double digit number of black people, but there's thousands <laughs> of people marching. Yeah. So I don't, I don't see a problem with really anybody fighting for the rights of another person, regardless mm-hmm. of who those people are. So I'm fine with like, like the protests in Alpine, Texas had, I didn't see any person of color, but I was mm-hmm. like, Hey, I feel supported. Thank you. Alpine, Texas. So mm-hmm. I'm fine. So that's to Ben's point, but I guess to your point, yeah. Uh, essentially that's intersectionalism to where like, yeah. So the, yeah. And you're also again, right. That, yeah, the black community tends to be overrepresented for negative things. And on, and I'll also say underrepresented for positive mm-hmm. because I mean, so the, I guess the four, okay. Yeah, you can see, I guess the four, if you're born like in a super poor, like community, you really only have four career choices, like four popular career choices mm-hmm. of being some sort of professional athlete, maybe a rapper, you can join the military or you can just go to prison. That's really about it. There's not many other job opportunities specifically in your community you likely, if you want to get a decent job, you have to leave just because there's just nothing there. Um, but even if like, let's say through some utopia or whatever, that these problems of like police brutality, which is the main reason why BLM was started, like stops, that doesn't mean that there's still no problems within the community because mm-hmm. yeah, like obviously like poverty, that's huge. But even like how, I guess how like how you opened up that like, oh, I'm wearing a mask. I'm going to come in hot with the anti-Semitic comments. Because yeah, that's a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Who, Deshaun Jackson, I think Mm -hmm. was the, yeah. So that anti-Semitism is still very, still pretty prevalent. So is homophobia. So is transphobia. Like those things still exist in the community and have nothing to do with police brutality, which is why BLM was started. So yeah, there's all sorts of like, like in every community, there's problems hopefully they get solved soon, but it's going to, it's going to require just a multi-dimensional approach because it's such a complex and there's multiple problems going on. Got it. So, so let's, let's, um, I'm going to try to hone in. What do you think, uh, is the primary problem? And then I'd be curious, what do you think? And you can, if there's more than one, feel free to let me know. And then the, the solution that you think best addresses it. I guess the two that, I guess, okay. I guess the, I guess, okay. I guess the, the overwhelming problem being that there is, I guess, so obviously there's multiple, but I guess the biggest one being is that there is a system in place that keeps certain people in a lower class permanently to help prop up those in an upper class. And it behooves the people in the far echelons of the upper class to keep a permanent lower class. Mm-hmm. Who that lower class happens to be, it's always, it tends to be people of color and other minorities. But the, the fact that there is, the fact that this system is in place is a bigger issue because it doesn't matter. The people 
in the system are completely interchangeable. It's the system that's in place that is the problem. Got it. So uh, would it be fair to characterize your assessment of the problem as primarily a class thing? Because as you said, while it might be predominantly uh, certain skin colors in what you called that permanent underclass, which I don't totally agree with, but just to understand your point, um, would it be fair to characterize that as primarily a class issue or is it is it a race issue in your mind? At least in America, class and race are so heavily intertwined that I can make a class issue a race issue. Mm -hmm. And I can, and even if certain people do, I guess, make it out and can, but that doesn't really matter because the system is still in place. So like it doesn't, what is it? I guess an example being that, okay, Obama was president, racism is solved forever. Obviously not, because BLM started when Obama was president. So it doesn't, I will say that the, there is no ceiling mm -hmm. for, like for everybody. Like I, this is true regardless of race, sex, class, uh, gender identity, whatever. There is no ceiling. But for those many of these same people, there also is no floor. Meaning you can fall almost forever. Mm -hmm. But if you begin to rise, you can also rise well to the top as well. So like, it, it is progress. Mm -hmm. but not I just want 30 more. Can I hop in real quick? Yeah. So, cause I'm just trying to help guide the conversation. So yeah. I think the, I just want to understand the idea of if it's mostly a class issue or mostly a race issue. And cause to your point, sure. Demographically, there's definitely the median income for a African-American family is much lower than the median income for other races, but whatever you think the, primary contributor to the problem is will determine your solution. So for instance, if you think it's a class issue, you would be in favor of something like raising the minimum wage, having universal basic income, maybe providing free housing for anyone who has a certain level of income. If you think it's mostly a race issue, you'd be in favor of reparations, which is to say- Or, or, or quotas or- Sure, sure. Yeah. But I'm just, I'm just giving an example. If you're like, no, it's not a class issue. It's, it is specifically the fact that people are trying to keep a certain race down, you'd go, okay, well, let's give money just to that race. And so while there's correlation, I'm curious what you think the main problem is because deciding on the problem together is going to directly inform what the solution is. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I would. Yeah. I, you make a good point, I guess. At least for now, I'm going to say it's more of a class issue, but with that, there obviously as as you can see, yeah, there's tends to be certain people who be, who are in that class. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so I would, so I'm going to say it's, but to keep it short, I'm going to say it's a class issue. Got it. So I guess what I'll do is, so that's, I've, I've seen your formulation of it. Here's, here's my formulation. And I talked about it a bit before is that mm -hmm. we live in a world that's unfair and it's unfair in so many ways. There are people that are born with advantages that are one inherited. So if you're born high IQ, it's like, wow, you're born, if you're born beautiful, high IQ in a rich nation, your starting line is just so much in front of someone who might be born with low IQ or a serious disability to an abusive family. So there's all of these things that make life unfair. And then on top of that, culturally, you know, because IQ is something that you could argue is going to change how someone moves through the world and what they're able to contribute. But even worse than that, then we add these cultural unfairnesses onto it. So we'll say that people who are uh, short are, are discriminated against in certain ways, perhaps when it comes to earning respect, people who are black or who are minorities in the given place that they're in are treated as worse for all of these reasons. So what I, what I see is the problem is that one, there's a ton of unfairness in the world. 
And some of it has been added there purely based on cultural and historical bias. And it lives inside of all of us. I would say that racism makes up a part of that. But I would also argue that there is so much more than racism. For instance, there is attractivism. And I think you will find that if you look in the upper echelons of presidents and the world and CEOs, you'll find that they are very oftentimes taller than the average. They're more beautiful than the average person. They tend not to be disabled. They certainly tend not to have any mental disabilities that would, uh, you know, you not don't see a lot of CEOs with Down syndrome or other things like that. And I'm no, not they're more likely to come from, uh, from middle class or up. from middle or upper class families. And I'm not saying that we want to equalize. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we want to equalize this, but I am suggesting that what we should do is look into each individual should look inside and say, in what ways do, am I discriminating? And the answer that everyone will find is myriad. I discriminate, you know, with who I date, who I'm friends with, et cetera. And then should ask, okay, what ways is reasonable for me to do? For instance, I do think it's reasonable to hire a CEO who is higher IQ, who is good at problem solving versus someone who isn't, even though there's nothing that either of those people did to earn that position. Why'd you look at me when you said people who aren't? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would think that we would also find ways in which we discriminate in our own lives and our day-to-day -day life that are completely unjustified habits that we've picked up from our culture of which racism is a piece, but not the only one. And so when it comes to finding the solutions, I would not want to see a solution that singled race out as that singular thing which we should try to eliminate, but actually was more all-encompassing so that race was included as something that we tried to eliminate from these sort of uh, hiring decisions, for instance, and who has access to good schools, et cetera, but included more than that. So that, that's, I guess, how I see the problem and the solution that, that I see it broadly speaking. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just uh, qualify, having qualified people in just, I guess, like the position, the relative positions of power, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. Um, one qualified, but also diverse, so that mm -hmm. they can. I guess a good example is um, Beyonce when she was getting pitched to when various shoe companies were pitching to represent her. I believe it was Reebok who sent like an all-white team, and before they even started, she was like, "Hey, before we start, like, is are you the people that are going to be representing my brand?" She was like, yes. She was like, all right, great. We're not even having the meeting. Have a good day. And another shoe company came in and there were not many, but there were at least some people of color. And they were like, hey, we're just the people that are pitching to you. When we actually begin our work, here is other people that will also be working on the team just for one reason or that they couldn't make it. So it's like, oh, there's going to be a diverse group of people that are representing me. I can reach my audience with that. I can get a broader audience, which is going to be better for my brand. And so she went with them. Got it. So I, I would, so I hear that and my, and this is a good, perhaps contentious thing. I, that sounds racist on Beyonce's part to me to look at someone and assume that because you know their skin color, that you know where they come from, you know what neighborhood they grew up in, you know their ability to represent you. Uh, that, that seems to me to boil a person down to their skin color. And when we use the term diversity, what we often mean is color of someone's skin, but we forget that there's an infinite number of ways in which we can be diverse. We can think differently. We can come from different upbringings. Uh, take Eminem, for existence, who grew up in 8 Mile. He certainly did not have the same upbringing as me, who is also white, or someone from West Virginia who might be white. So when I hear diversity, I think, one, I think that it's, it's a, there's definitely advantages to diversity, but I think it 
there's so much more to diversity than skin color. And when I hear that people are making diversity judgments based only on skin color, that to me smacks of racism. So I'd be curious what you think of that. I, I do agree that diver- that even people that look alike and came from the same location mm-hmm. can have diversity of thought because diversity of thought is important. And I ultimately that is... I guess two things is ultimately diversity of thought is the point. Mm -hmm. It is admittedly more difficult to find people that all are from the same area and all look alike to have diversity. It is possible, but it is more difficult to find people that have such a a much wider range of diversity of thought Mm -hmm. with that. And also to just representation is that if, um, I guess, so I guess the, the, the black, the Cinderella from early, I believe it was the early 90s. There was essentially almost an all-black cast of Cinderella. Mm-hmm. And growing up, that was the version of Cinderella that I knew. Like, I didn't know that there was this whole other version. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, this is, growing up, I was like, oh, okay. This is just how Cinderella is. This is something that I see. I didn't really like it because it's Cinderella. So I was like, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> My sister loved it, but I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Because my sister loved it, therefore I hate it. So I was like, eh. But yeah, so just two things, representation, diversity of thought. Um, sh- I, again, I wasn't in the meeting, so I don't know if like they actually, how much of a hive mind they actually were. But yeah, I guess I would agree that if you just look at a person's skin color and make large, broad assumptions about their life, how they think, how they vote, what have you, yeah, that's not that's not mm-hmm. okay. But Got it. if if... I guess more specifically, if, if like, hey, this is a group of people that are going to represent me mm-hmm. and none of them look like me. And I know like when you go back to your offices and you recruit other people to help you like do this project or whatever, and they also don't look like me, mm-hmm. then I'm like, okay, that doesn't, that isn't a good representation. And that also, that's not a good representation of me, Beyonce. And that's mm-hmm. not a good represent, that also won't help reach an audience because they yep. also cannot see someone representing themselves. So I'll steal man Beyonce's position real quick, just, just to sort of echo to what you said, which is that, look, my demographic is primarily black. They, they have, ex- they have uh, primarily types of experiences they, that are different from white people. At the, at the very basic, basic then, <laughs> that they need less sunscreen or that their hair has different caretaking things. And like, if we're making these kinds of products for people and you've never experienced that, it's going to be tough for you to represent this appropriately. That, that would be my steel man of her position. Uh, at the same time, I don't know exactly what she's selling. So, and, and for instance, I think it would be totally reasonable for someone to discriminate on a model being like, look, I'm making clothes that are primarily for women that are shaped like this, and I need you to look like this. But what I would say is that saying that someone doesn't look like me, therefore they, they um, it, it boils what who I am, and I guess in this case, Beyonce is down to the way that she looks. And I would argue that one, nobody looks like Beyonce, <laughs> but two, but two, that Beyonce is so much more than the way that she looks. Right? She, her brand, uh, to to boil down to such a surface thing as what color is your skin or what like those kids might all of those people might all have grown up in incredibly wealthy neighborhoods, despite the fact that they were black, they could all vote Republican. These things exist, right? So. I think that that if we're not careful, we can conflate likely to have had same experiences as me, which is to say you look like me, you're likely to with did, 
have same experiences as me. And if you make that leap based solely on someone's skin color, I think that that is then a problem. Um, you wanted to hop in with something. Well, no, I guess, well, I, have, I guess I have two things, which is to say one, I assume that if a country star did the same thing where someone yeah. came in with half minorities and half Caucasians and he said, no, we don't even have to start the meeting. You guys are not my team. And then an all white team came in. He's like, okay, I'll hear your pitch. People would be very upset. Mm-hmm. And I think in general, if you're going to be upset at the reverse of something, it's very likely that you shouldn't be a proponent of what happened, mm-hmm. which is to say, I just don't think anybody should necessarily applaud that decision-making because you wouldn't like it if other people applied it. Right? Yeah. So, so this is a good question because I do, I, know, I don't know how you feel, but there is the thread of thinking that says racism can only flow in one particular direction. And the, and this particular thread says that it's from people who have held historical positions of power, which is to say people of skin colors, genders, and sexual orientations that match people in positions of power which is to say white men who are straight, uh, cannot experience or be on the receiving end of racism. I'm curious if you agree or disagree with that. I... Because it's an... It's, I guess this is, it's, this is how one defines racism, you know? Right. So, so I, I guess for, I guess, more academic purposes, mm-hmm. sure, in that they're... If I, I guess on a more casual level, no, because that does, I'm not going to, in a casual conversation, I'm not going to make like any distinction between like bigotry, prejudice, or racism. I'm just going to use all three words interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I were like, for instance, in a position, like a politician or something like in some sort of position of power where I, I know I could affect whether positively or negatively people below me then I would, okay, then I, then I would start to make, I guess, those distinctions. And, and then I would start to like actually look at my behavior and see how it affect, how I can be affected. But for just in casual conversation, no, I don't make any distinction. Got it. So, so sorry. So just, I, no. just to clarify, so you're saying that racism can flow in a direction from uh, a black person to a white person? Uh, yeah, I'm going to say yes. Yes. Okay. But it, I would agree. Um, I, I think that racism, the way that I would define racism is not the way that I describe. The way that I would define it is a prejudicial determination about someone uh, based solely on their skin color and not into an investigation of the merit of whatever you're looking for. So if you're looking for a CEO to hire a CEO because they are black or because they are white, not based on their ability to do the job. If you're looking into mm-hmm. a, an athlete to hire or not hire someone based on the color of their skin as opposed to whether or not they can hit the bucket. Um, so that, that's how I would des- define racism. And also it could be um, in casual life, it would be to treat a person kindly or unkindly based on the color of their skin. So to say something, you know, that's how racist things occur is I go, you know, not I go, someone goes, <laughs> I see what you look like, therefore I dislike you. Uh, and so, and so, I, and I think that all of those things can flow different directions. Historically, I totally agree that there's been a, uh, a, massive overwhelm of uh, white towards black for the last several hundred years. Um, but nowadays, I, I, what concerns me is that some of the solutions that I see seem to involve flipping the dynamic of now going like you kind of described, we, you know, we, we uh, will be making determinations about who we hire based on the color of your skin. Is, is it clipping, by the way? Can you hear me? That is. Yeah, I can, I can still understand what you're saying, but yeah, I'm not getting every, like, it's not as clear as what we used okay. to Okay. Hold on. Let's, let's, let's try this. So Justin, I think we might have to do this because if it's recording like this, it's probably, yeah. let's, let's let it uh, catch up real quick. 
Yeah, it just started. Might, cool. might help if everyone turns Wi-Fi off their phones. Too. Okay, I'm on to it. You don't have to. You don't have to. You're okay. This yeah, is you're, in a library. <laughs> you're in a library. You're not. <laughs> they got the bandwidth. Um, I hear. I hear it good now. So anyway, I forget what I was saying. But um, the the general point being that you're that, against racism from all directions. Yes, and I don't think that the solution to historical injustice is to flip the dynamic in any way, but instead to eliminate that dynamic whereby people are making prejudicial decisions. And, okay, so how do you rectify the past that, as you've said, that there is uh, an overwhelming majority, or not a majority, uh, an overrepresentation of black people in positions of, of difficulty is to mm-hmm. treat the entire section of the population that is suffering from those difficulties so that, you know, that we're not just uh, helping black kids who don't have fathers, but any kid who doesn't have a father might receive some sort of support. And of course, being careful that we're not incentivizing single motherhood in such a way where that becomes a practical, like, oh, this is a great idea. Like the government's going to step in and, and be the greatest dad in the world. So why would I want to do that? So that that's my general uh, approach to this. Is that something you agree with or disagree with? And then we can no, talk I about would, what, go ahead. I would very much agree with it because in, I'm not like a huge expert on intersectionalism. I just know a bit about economics and mm-hmm. that, yeah, you, yeah, if you essentially, if you want, yeah, like, like you mentioned how black people tend to be overrepresented in just various negative aspects. So, mm-hmm. so if you get, I'll, I guess I'll use, because I know something about economics, I'm just gonna use poverty as an example. Sure. So if you implement social programs that do that help people escape poverty, that's going to help everybody in mm-hmm. poverty, whether it be, yeah, so that would be, and because class and race are so heavily intertwined, you can help solve, you can help eliminate some race issues by also eliminating certain class issues. And if we both agree that these two things are separate problems, we can help solve both of them with, by, by eliminating certain class issues. So yeah, sure. so that's just one example. But yes, yeah. in no, short, I-, I would agree. Yeah, I mean, from my, from my perspective, at least, like, like for example, we donate a lot of money to Charity Water. Mm-hmm. A, that money, I think, almost exclusively helps uh, people in Africa who are black, although sometimes it helps people in Asia, and they get clean water. But we don't do it because they're African or black. We do it because we think that children, well, actually, everyone should just have access to drinkable water that doesn't give them huge mouth tumors. And I think right. similarly, if you are trying to solve the clean water problem, and you are agnostic to the race of the people it helps, I think you end up solving the clean water problem. And if the problem in the US is that there's- Not upward mobility in this- Systemic poverty, let's call it, right? Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. idea that if you're born very lower class or in the poverty line, it's very tough to get out of it. And you just try to solve that problem and you try to create upward mobility for people who are in poverty, agnostic to their race, that ultimately that will help whoever it helps. And if that helps 90%, African-Americans, or if it helps 70% African-Americans, I'm not concerned. Uh, and I'm not trying to make it, oh, it can only help 13% African-Americans because that's the population percentage. I'm just trying to help people who are being stuck in poverty because it's hard with the current systems to get out of poverty. Does that make sense? So that's my view. And yeah. if it ends up, it, whoever, yeah, okay, it helps 80% African-Americans and 20% everyone else. Like, that's fine. Let's just identify the problem and help fix the problem. That's kind of how I view it. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree because yeah, like I guess, so charity water that actually is, that solves the, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm -hmm. the very bottom level, yeah, involves things like food, shelter, and water. 
So that solves one of the, the one of the first level of needs that you need before you can even begin to actually start to improve your life. Yeah, if I have nowhere to live, I'm not gonna, I don't have food and I don't have water. Those are my immediate concerns. Like I'm gonna worry about everything else afterwards. So mm-hmm. yeah, so charity water does help solve that base level of need. Um, and yeah, and you would just go from there because I guess due to the, thankfully actually due to the, the infrastructure that is in place in America, for the, really if you, if you have shelter, you generally also have that is well, if you're in Flint, that's not I was going to say, Flint, Flint, Michigan, which well, is yeah, horrible. Okay, well, yeah, but so I guess uh, America has lots of infrastructure problems, which is a separate discussion, but yeah. it is easier to solve the bottom level of hierarchy of needs if you have the capital to do so. Mm-hmm. But it's the, the real issue is just acquiring that capital. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of, there are much better economists that have all that definitely already have the issues solved for how to eliminate poverty in America. It's more, how do you actually, how do you convince either the public or politicians to actually implement those solutions? Mm, sure. That's, so, I think is the bigger problem. Well, I, I, weirdly enough, I mean, I assume the majority of people in the U S are middle-class or lower, right? So it, if everyone banded together agnostic of their race to elect politicians that would focus on poverty, you would have a political system that focused heavily on poverty. Well, I think, and that's not, that's not what unites people politically. Instead it's, you know, all sorts of stuff, gun control, mm -hmm. abortion, that sort of thing. Well, in addition, I think that unfortunately poverty, I, I don't think is purely something that can be solved from the top down. So when you talk about that lower level hierarchy of needs of Maslow's, I am like, that's why I donate to charity water. Cause I, I can't imagine not having clean drinking water and making it out. It's, it's, it's absurd to think like, okay, I'm going to walk six hours a day to go to the, to the river that has kind of clean drinking water. And then in the free time, I'm going to study the one book that we have. Like there's no chance. Yeah. So I think that, yes, I, what I try to do as someone who is extremely lucky is take some of the excess capital that I have and reallocate it to building the basic, basic infrastructure for, for a handful of people. The problem is if you look at poverty, it's of course relative. And I don't think, and I think for that reason, it can never be eliminated. So not that it, that's, it's not a problem. It still is a problem. Wealth inequality creates strife and class conflict and all these kinds of things. But if you look at some of the lower class in America, as you mentioned, they tend to, though there are homeless, have shelter, access to clean water. You're in a library right now. They tend to have access to the internet and, and all of these sorts of things. So what's weird is that even if you were to raise the basic level of access to food, water, shelter, that, and get that 100% across the board, you wouldn't solve the poverty problem. Because one of the things that makes humans unsatisfied, unfortunately, is not just the absolute level of having their basic needs met, but it's the comparison to the people around them. And as long as people around them seem to be doing so much better, there's going to be this, this class that is and feels impoverished, it seems to me. Do you disagree or agree with that? No, it, the, it, the, um, I guess I forget the, there's a related academic term that I do know, but I guess, I mean, I guess I'll mention it. So the hedonic treadmill mm-hmm. in that, yeah, just, you know, oh, whatever, whatever, whatever situation that you are currently around in for however long it is, that now becomes normal. If your situation gets better, fantastic. If it gets worse, then that's bad. And that's true regardless of like where, how great your life currently is. And mm-hmm. yeah, so the, I guess currently the hedonic treadmill is at where it's at, but let's say 
yeah, in the future, yeah, like literally there's no homelessness because everyone is sheltered mm-hmm. in these shelters that are, you know, not like amazing, but they're also not terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's food, there's water, you can get a shower. Um, there's jobs that, again, may not pay very well, but you can earn an income mm-hmm. doing something. Yeah, you're still going to have poor people. Poverty. Yeah, that's, that's yeah the you're still going to have it. Yes. Um, so to, I guess, an acceptable level of poverty for various developed countries is anywhere between four to seven percent in that to a certain degree that you just you, you just can't get rid of that level of poverty. It's just going, whether it be uh, mental illness, cultural failings, like whatever, like there's going to be some level of poverty that like once you reach it, like it's just, you're going to diminishing marginal returns. Like it's just not, you can do better investing in other things, but we definitely haven't reached that yet. And with the recession that might turn into a depression, uh, the poverty rate's only going to get higher. So there are going to be things that in the immediate future, like social programs that could be implemented that would help the economy immediately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in, in the long term, yeah, these, these programs, assuming they work, yeah, there's always going to be some level of poverty that we're just going to have to be okay with. Got it. So um, I think, so we, we will, we'll cover the other stuff, but before we wrap with this segment, is there anything that you wanted to cover that you don't feel like we got a chance to, to talk about? Nothing, I guess nothing, hmm. no, I'm going to, in short, I'm going to say no. There are definitely, I guess there are of the various, I guess I'm thinking of significantly people that tend to be more more close-minded. I guess I'm envisioning them, but Mm -hmm. I'm also realizing I don't know if they would, I don't, I don't know if I could reach them essentially. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm like, there are definitely things that I want to say, but if my words fall in deaf ears, then I don't, then why talk? Okay. So well, I'd be, I'm, I'd I'm be curious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's curious. not. Oh, well, I guess I could, the, I guess I'm not including you in that. I sure, 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 like, no, sure, sure, sure. But I'm listening to of your opinion about those people who might be close-minded. So feel, so feel free to share. Yeah. So, okay. So again, like I've, as someone who cares about economics, cause I study it, yeah, they're um, from with the civil rights around the time of the Civil Rights Act of 65, there uh, LBJ, I think that was mm-hmm. the president, signed a bunch of just new laws because, hey, I'm going to lose anyway. Let's just start, you know, putting in social programs. So the Immigration Rights Act of 64, which helped, which is the reason why we have such a large diverse pool of immigrants now because we didn't used to. And there were more social programs implemented at that time as well. And if you look, if you look at just a graph of the poverty rate from about 1960 to now, the steepest drop and the lowest point it's ever was, was when those social programs began to implement. And it, it originally was at like 25% and it dropped to like the, about four, hmm. Essentially, it went to that low range that I mentioned, somewhere between four and seven, that like once it reaches that point, it's never going to get any lower. And that was in like 10 years, which is insane that you can have such a steep drop in that short amount of time in about 10 years to go from 25 to the point where it's just not going to get any lower. Um, And I had a friend, friend, 
who was like, oh, social programs cause poverty. No, here's a graph proving that you're wrong. And he was just like, no, I'm right. And I'm like, you didn't even look at the graph. Like you're just denying <laughs> reality. Like look at the graph. You see the line, it went down. Do you have another argument, please? He didn't. And I, I don't know, just that denial of facts that mm -hmm. is one thing to like, uh, so, I guess, so okay, it's one thing well, to- I think, I think, think you're onto something really fascinating here. So, so go ahead. Yeah, so I guess, so uh, I guess one example that Trump used is more white people are killed by the police than black people. Mm -hmm. Okay, on an absolute level, yes, that is true. On a per capita level, no. Like the rate, that, that's just not accurate. And so it, the, the misrepresentation of facts, obviously not by all conservatives, but by the ones that I spend the most time around, at least, mm -hmm. is not, yeah, I just don't like it. And that's one of the reasons why I got into economics so I could better argue at least mm -hmm. these economic points. The cultural points, I'll let someone else deal with that. But yeah, the economic points that, yeah, these are just facts. Like the graph went down, then you, can, you can't say that, oh, actually the graph went up. No, it went down. So let me, allow me to challenge this because I, I think this is the crux of the problem when you nailed it. But it's often framed as someone who is a liberal or a Democrat will say the conservatives often, yeah. do this and the conservatives will say the Democrats do this. And my suggestion would be that Fair. we all pick a side and then defend it. And that's the problem. And so even in the, can you hear me? Sorry, I think we're breaking up a bit. Yeah, I can hear you. Cool. Yeah, um, I'm breaking up a bit, but I can still hear you. And, I, and I've done the same thing that you kind of described. I picked philosophy so that I could win my arguments. But what you, the reason that you said you went into economics was to be, be able to better argue the thing that you had already determined to be true, as opposed, of, to, yes. <laughs> as opposed to to determine what economic system might actually work best, because it's entirely possible that you, you could be mistaken. Have it, you, know, you weren't an economics student, you went in, maybe it's possible that some of these social programs are actually perpetuating poverty. Um, and just as an example, to the point that you made uh, about police shootings, you're absolutely right. More white people are killed by police than black people. You're absolutely right. More black people are killed per capita than white people. It's also true that on a per crime basis, they're more evenly represented. So this is to say that facts, we often talk about facts and feelings as if they're these different categories of things. But the truth is statistics can be made to lie. And they are made to lie by all of us when we come to an argument knowing the side we want to win as opposed to being interested in getting to the best answer. And so I'm guilty of this. I think I, I do it all the time when I discuss with people. I just want to win. I just I have the side that I came in on. They have the side they came in on. And my job is to make them look foolish. But I would suggest that to Democrats, Republicans, anybody, the goal ought to be to get it right. And to that point, like, you know, you, you mentioned the graph went down. Uh, that could be correlation or causation or, or any number of things that happened at the same time. Uh, just to give you an example, one of the ones that is often talked about in uh, correlation is that if you look at the rate of alcoholism in Boston, it rises in lockstep with the number of priests in Boston. And one might therefore conclude that priests are causing alcoholism. What you would be missing is that there's a third causal variable, which is population size. <laughs> so as the population goes up, there's more alcoholics and there's more priests. Uh, all that to say that data can lie, but the real problem is not the data, it's the people who come in with agendas. And those people are not the other side, 
it's all of us. So that, that would be my, my take on that. I don't know if you have any thoughts or comments. No, I, would, I, I would agree. I guess another example of that population size is actually the solution is there's a direct correlation between the number of Chinese restaurants and the number of fire stations as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every, so, Same thing. Exactly. And, and what I see in myself and in the world is that basically what happens, unfortunately, is people, because of their parents or sometimes as a reaction to their parents, pick their new station of choice. And that could be CNN or Fox or Breitbart or, or something else. And once they've picked that, they are utterly convinced that the people who agree with them are reasonable people. And the people who disagree must be violent idiots who want the worst for the world. And the good news that I would say, and having spoken to people who feel differently, is that they tend to actually be very similar in their values in terms of like wanting to do the right thing. Now, they might have some disagreements about how we get there. Do we need more social programs or do we need more personal responsibility? That's a huge disagreement. But they're actually moving towards, I think, in most cases, the same end state, which is a, which is the, a better world for, for more people, generally speaking. Can I say one thing? The, yeah. uh, the group you talk to, generally average IQ or higher. Higher. <laughs> so that's the thing, right? So like, so yeah, and, the, and I, have a, I have a selection. Bias. On all sides of the political <laughs> spectrum, but at about 110, 120 IQ or higher, right? Yeah. So we, you actually don't necessarily know you're what right. it's like you're right at 100 iq at 90 iq that's totally fair do i don't know either but i'm just saying this idea that everybody's trying to row the boats in the right direction and they're just differing on how how we get there they yeah. get there and what f the facts are is true in your experience talking to people all over the political spectrum from a certain level of gone to university done well in school etc yep, right that's a great point that's a great point. So if anyone has a 90 IQ and wants to call it, <laughs> we would absolutely, I'm dead serious, <laughs> yeah. love to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a question for you actually, because I'm just very curious. So I've heard, and it's just because you brought it up, I've heard people say, well, police brutality is not, first of all, police brutality can be a problem and be race agnostic. That's a separate conversation, right? How big a problem is police brutality? What do we do about it? But I'm just curious. I've heard people say police brutality is not racist. If you look at it, more white people are killed than black people. And then I've heard people say police brutality is racist. If you look at it as a percentage of the population, twice as many black people are killed as you would expect because it's 26% versus 13%. And then I've heard people say, actually, if instead of looking at it at race, you look at it at <clears throat> uh, people who are committing crimes, police kill people race agnostic. It just matches exactly who's committing crimes. I'm curious, what, how do you think about those three things? And how do you think about police brutality in the context of race? Uh, well, one, I guess all three of those groups seem to believe that police brutality exists. So it would behoove all of them to eliminate that problem. Um, and two, I guess I tend to be in the camp that the first one, that first one, police brutality does exist. So there are certain agnostic issues that are just going to happen regardless of what race you are. But also there do there are numbers that back up both the first and the third group in that, for instance, stop and frisk in New York, the overwhelming amount of people that were stopped were black and brown people. The, but there was no direct correlation in the people who were stopped and the people who actually had drugs or guns or whatever they were looking for. Like they just more or less would stop almost every black and brown person eventually and barely any of the white people and that's not 
good because that's not an accurate popula it's not an accurate representation of the population. But yes, the, I guess as was mentioned earlier for the third group, yeah, like there there is an overrepresentation of in of criminality within the within the black community. But I guess that goes back to what a, crime is a symptom of poverty. Mm -hmm. So if you want there to be less crime, eliminate poverty. So that's, mm -hmm. I guess that's one of the reasons. Yeah. So I guess in short, I tend to be part of the first group. All three have a good argument. Police brutality just shouldn't be a thing. Mm -hmm. Cool. No, I only ask a similar, we're talking about the problem you identified determines the solution that you prioritize, right? So if you think that police are racist, you'll put funding into uh, training police to get rid of their unconscious bias. Racism. Yeah. If you think the problem is that poverty creates criminals and because black people are overrepresented in the poverty, they overrepresent who's committing the crimes, not at all to do with genetics, but just because of the poverty, you would go and try to figure out how to solve poverty and how to prevent people from becoming criminals. So that's, that's why I'm curious. Cause I think where you think the problem starts is going to determine your solution. And if you misidentify the problem, you're going to solve the wrong problem, which is to say you're going to put all of your attention and funding into something that doesn't work. Work. Yeah. Does that make sense? So that's why I was curious. Yeah. No, yeah. That's, I guess, if anything, that's a, I guess, a quote that I probably should write down. I don't know. About, yeah. Like, yeah. No, that's, that, say that. that's, yeah, that, that's the thing I'm going to think about. Yeah. No, I like, yeah. I would, awesome. so yeah, just, yeah, where, where you, what you identify as the main problem is where you're going to devote the most resources. So yeah, you need to be, even if there are multiple problems, yeah, you need to be careful as to where you're divvying up these resources. Yeah, no, I would. I couldn't agree more, man. That's then, and shameless plug for Charity Water. I'm not saying it's the biggest problem in the world, but one of the things that I like about, we, we did this fundraiser for Charity Water, they get clean water to people, primarily in Africa, is that for $30, which I mean, what can you get in America for $30? You can get an individual clean water who doesn't have it for 10 years time. And that's, that's basically what it averages out to with the wells that they're making. So uh, in terms of focusing on big problems in the world, I do think one of the biggest bang for your buck is in donating to charities that primarily operate in Africa. So the Against Malaria Fund. I was just, I was actually just going to say that one. Incredible. If, people, if people don't like Charity Water for whatever reason, this is one that I like that we have no affiliation with Against Malaria Fund. I think it's 10 cents for a mosquito net. And it's like $6. Yeah. They, and again, you can fudge the numbers, but it's, it's yeah, appears six, to be $6 per life saved. Yeah. So six to 10 bucks gets you 60 to hundred nets. It's literally saves someone from dying of malaria. So. Mm -hmm. That's another good one in terms of bang for your buck. Yeah. But Cameron, yeah. thank you so much, man. Yeah. I wanted to say this. You're, you are very thoughtful. I really, I really appreciate you coming on. You're very thoughtful. You choose your words with purpose. Uh, you present yourself very, very well. So uh, thanks for calling in. I mean, thanks for, you know, producing great content. Yeah. I'm definitely going to, I already was going to keep tuning in anyway. But <laughs> yeah, I'll see more invested. You we can, didn't mess it up. You can learn if you're, uh, if you like watching yourself or hate watching yourself, because there's people in both camps. I definitely am the latter. I hate hearing my own voice. Uh, I might not watch this. I may not watch this. Just totally I understandable. Don't <laughs> I don't watch my videos either. <laughs> Cameron, thank you so yeah, much. Thank man. you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.